Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 234. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here this week, finally, after 234 episodes, to review and discuss Peter Pan. I really cannot believe that it's taken us this long, and I'm kind of bummed that we waited, because now we have to put it up against the live-action remake. Well, that was why we did wait, because... The movie recently celebrated a 70th anniversary, or at least it's in its 70th year. And it's like, do you do do it now, or do you wait to do a compare and contrast with the live action? And I felt like maybe this was the better move just so that it would pad having to watch the live action film. Right. But we are joined this week by a very special guest, our good friend Luke Lawson. You all remember him from his guest spot on our review of Heavyweights. Luke, welcome back to Monoreal Radio. Buddy! Buddy! Monoreal, I am so excited to be back, especially to talk about this movie, which has a near and dear spot to my heart. Uh, I really appreciate you all inviting me back on to talk about probably my favorite character of all time, Peter Pan. We appreciate you coming back. You are truly the Peter Pan aficionado. I feel like we're going to learn so much from you on this episode. I don't know about that, but I, I do know that it, it is probably the book that I've read the most. It is probably the story that I know front and back, all the different iterations. So uh, I'm excited about it. I also know some of the history too. So if, if you do learn something, um, I'll, be, I'll be grateful for that and I'll be excited to teach uh, a little bit about Peter Pan and the lore. Uh, but I'm just really excited to talk about this film to you because you're right, it is 70 years old. And that to me is still just incredible and amazing that it still has the staying power uh, and the characters that we see all around the parks today. Yeah, we when we launched Monoreal Radio, what, five years ago now? Yeah. Luke heard, and, and for those who were a part of the heavyweights discussion, you're going to hear the same story again. Luke was amongst the first two people to hear the first episode of Monoreal Radio, I think a week or two before it even dropped. We soft launched. Right. So that day where you heard it, immediately you said, I want Peter Pan. And thank you for remaining patient and waiting. Very patient. <laughs> like when we say patient, I mean, like before we came on, Luke was kind of walking us through the setup in his in his new spot here. And he's got Peter Pan on shelves. He's got Peter Pan on the walls. He's got Peter Pan everywhere like this. A book collection. That is very impressive. I love that you have you said 18 books. Thank you. Yeah, currently 18 different copies of Peter Pan, including three different languages uh, and uh, four that are actually interactive. So have like pop up features and things in them. So, uh, yeah, that's one of my my collectible loves. Uh, and other than that, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited that, uh, you know, that you that you brought me on for this one. I know it took over 200 shows um, to talk about Peter Pan, but I think that there's no better time uh, because there's so much, I think, you know, to your point about the, the live action just being relaunched. Uh, about it being the 70th year and the 70th anniversary. There's just so much still kind of in the ether, especially the Disney World ether uh, that has to do with Peter Pan. So it was worth the wait. Absolutely. So let me ask you before we even get into it, what is it about this film? What is it about this character that you have had a lifelong infatuation with? It's the fact that I never want to grow up and I never want to be an adult myself. Preach. So to see that... 
Exactly. To see that embodied in someone else and, and to have that story told over and over. I think that the great thing about Peter Pan is that you can relate to that feeling of knowing that growing up is coming or knowing that you have to be an adult. You know, I don't want to adult today. Um, and somewhere out somewhere in the universe, Peter Pan is not adulting. Uh, and that is just to me is a very powerful kind of message and thought. Um, I also love how the story can sort of be adapted a little bit and you can see it in a lot of different lights uh, and a lot of different sort of, you know, theories on who Peter Pan is, how he relates to uh, to John, Michael, to Wendy uh, and, and what Neverland actually is. So we, we may get into some of that. Um, but I, I just love the adaptability of the story. We will absolutely get into that because for me, it's always been the same thing. Um, we've hit on it before, but I haven't really fully explained on the show my Tinkerbell tattoo. Um, it's more than the film for me. It's the idea of never growing up. That's why I got it. I got it. Um, I waited till I was 19 because I wanted one when I was 18. And I was like, let me make sure that I still want this and that it's, it, you know, this Disney obsession is not, it's never just a phase, right? Um, but I wanted Tinkerbell because to me, it it's reminiscent of the story. It's a reminder to never grow up. And that's why I got it at that age because I was, you know, in college and I, I didn't want to lose that, you know, I, I didn't want to lose my childhood and I didn't want to lose that, that, you know, innocent point of view and it's college. It's just so much coming at you all at once. So I always wanted that reminder to not get too stressed out and, and remember the important things in life. And as far as, you know, being able to look down at my wrist and like, remember not to get stressed. It's never worked a day in my life because I'm just too type A for that. But I do love carrying that with me and the the reminder to never grow up. And um, especially before we moved down here, like it's just always been a constant reminder of the parks and what makes me truly happy. And I think, you know, as I've gotten older, that's what it really means to me more than anything else is is just my Disney memories. And that's what I associate Tinkerbell with more now than the movie itself. So what is it like for you now living a short hour and 15 minute drive from the magic? Is that something you would have ever envisioned for yourself as a kid? Certainly not when I got this tattoo. No, <laughs> but, but I, I mean, I wasn't a kid when I got the tattoo, but looking at it in that context, like how much I loved Disney as a kid, I loved it enough to, permanently put it on my body like no I would have never thought so I have a really different history with Peter Pan in that I don't have much of a history with Peter Pan at all now don't get me wrong this was not like I didn't see it for the first time when I was 17 years old I, I saw it for the first time when I was like three years old and I had a Nana doll and I had the toys I had a Peter Pan you know like we had all that growing up as kids and, you know, you'd watch it in school and my grandmother would take us. We'd get it on VHS from the library, right? Like what everybody sort of did in the 80s and 90s when you were a kid. But in spite of all of that, this was not a film that we owned on VHS. And I don't know why we never owned it on VHS. It's just because my father likes this movie a lot. I mean, I think my mom's sort of indifferent. My grandmother really likes this movie or, you know, at least she did. And so, like, I'm just... I didn't have as much of a history with it because I didn't have the rewatchability because we didn't have the tape. We had, you know, Cinderella. We had Jungle Book. We had, you know, Aladdin. We had Little Mermaid. But for whatever reason, we never owned this one, and I can't really pinpoint why. So 
I had actually gone probably 15 years between viewings of, of this film. Because I didn't watch it until right before we went, I think, on our 2017 Disney trip. Mm-hmm. When I was just loading up on classics, you know, to, to kind of get us fired up for that trip. You know, like we needed the help. And uh, and then I, I didn't watch it again until this week for the show. And so I'm kind of glad that I held. Because I think that my appreciation for this film and the way I viewed this film this week is so opposite from the way I ever looked at this film for a lot of the reasons that I think you you both are talking about here um, and and sort of appreciating it for not wanting to adult today, right? Did you watch Hook a lot, though? Oh, yeah. So that was the, the iteration that was more in, in your wheelhouse growing up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that... Is- that that's where my sort of sort of fuel to the fire of Peter Pan came from. So I remember, you know, being read the book as a kid. I remember seeing like the the golden book. Like we, I still have my old golden book from back in the day of Peter Pan. But when Hook came out, and I remember renting Hook for the first time and thinking, "This this is my movie. This is my Peter Pan." Going back and rewatching the animated cartoon and thinking, I, uh, "This I mean, the story in in totality is is something that I love." And then if you extend Hook back and, and actually think of it as a pair to the to the book, like the, the original J.M. Barry book, rather than a pair to the animated film, it is just a, a flawless kind of execution um, all the way through uh, of, of story uh, telling. So I love, you know, I, I love, again, that speaks to the adaptability. It comes in a lot of different packages and a lot of different ways that you can see this film and this character. Exactly. Thinking about it now, my brother was bigger on rewatching Peter Pan. We did have the VHS, but Hook was more my go-to. I think that's that's probably like a 90s kid thing. That was really like our generation's version of Peter Pan. Yeah, my, how do you not love Rufio? Uh, yeah, I mean, nobody loves Rufio more than you. 100%. 100%. I have dressed as Rufio twice now for races and uh, one of my favorite, favorite characters. It's fantastic to be yelled at while on the race course. Rufio! It's fantastic. Yeah, my father took me to see Hook in the movie theaters when it came out. Yeah, so we, yeah, Hook was far more my film and what I went back to a lot. But so many things to discuss. Have your opinions of the movie changed, though I doubt it. I know my opinion has changed. Does the film hold up now 70 years later? And I think we all know the answer to that question. But we have a lot of others that we are going to answer today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at checkout. Visit FierceFoxDesignCo.com to check out all of the collections. In London, eldest child... Wendy Darling and her brothers John and Michael share the nursery as well as their love for the stories of Peter Pan. When their father becomes fed up with the fantasies of Peter Pan, he orders that Wendy move from the nursery to her own room. That night, Peter Pan arrives to retrieve his shadow that had previously been left in the nursery. When Peter learns that Wendy is to grow up the next day and no longer tell his stories, he offers to take her to Neverland to be a mother to him and the Lost Boys. With faith, trust, and pixie dusk, 
Peter, Tinkerbell, Wendy, John, and Michael fly to Neverland, where we meet Peter's adversary, Captain Hook, and Mr. Smee. Hook plans to kidnap Tiger Lily, daughter of the chief, in order to get the location of Peter's hideout. We learn that Peter cut off Hook's hand and fed it to a crocodile that enjoyed it so much that he pursues Hook to feed on the rest. When Peter and the rest arrive in uh, Neverland, Hook attacks, so Tinkerbell calls on the Lost Boys, except she tells them to attack Wendy instead. Peter saves her and banishes Tink for a week for high treason. John, Michael, and the Lost Boys are then captured by the Chief and his men, which is usually a game where the loser is released. However, Tiger Lily has been kidnapped, and unless she is returned, they are to be burned at the stake. Meanwhile, Peter and Wendy go to Mermaid Lagoon, where they see the crocodile and follow it to Skull Rock, where Hook is interrogating Tiger Lily for the whereabouts of Peter's hideout. Peter fights Hook, who is chased away by the croc, and then he rescues Tiger Lily back on the ship. Hook learns that Tink was banished and decides to tell her that they will help her get rid of Wendy, so he sends Smee to retrieve her. Upon Tiger Lily's return, the chief names Peter Flying Eagle, and they share a peace pipe. Smee brings uh, Tinkerbell to Hook, who tells her that they are leaving in the morning and heard that Wendy has driven a wedge between her and Peter, and that Peter must be rescued, and that they will take Wendy with them if they only knew where to find her. So Tinkerbell tells them the exact location of the hideout in exchange for Peter's safety. However, Hook swiftly locks her in a lantern. Back at the hideout, Wendy tells the boys that they are to go home in the morning as she has grown tired of the games and the chaos of Neverland. Peter tells them that once they grow up, they can never return. Hook kidnaps Wendy, her brothers, and the Lost Boys and leaves a bomb wrapped as a gift for Peter. Upon learning about Peter's fate, Tinkerbell escapes and warns Peter of the bomb flying away with the package and becoming badly wounded as it explodes. On Hook's ship, Wendy walks the plank but is rescued by Peter and Tink. Peter then fights Hook while the Lost Boys fight his crew. When Hook falls from his ship, he is chased away by the crocodile, so Peter and the rest take his ship and fly back to London, where Wendy's father has decided to not move her to the nursery, and her parents see the pirate ship fly away into the sky, and her father says that he sort of remembers seeing that when he was a young child. I feel like that plot is such an oversimplification of everything that is truly going on. Well, I mean, I'm the conversation is going to break down so much. I mean, it's it's a quick plot. I mean, what do you want me to do? No, that wasn't that wasn't a knock at you. I'm just saying like there's there's just so many more layers. Before we get into the actual story itself, I want to talk about the opening credits. Uh the artwork is just absolutely stunning and I think it's just clear as day that this is Mary Blair at her finest. 100% what I was going to say, Jackie, the, the, the Mary Blairness of this film is, is it is still stunning and still the colors pop uh, the, the way that, that things kind of appear on screen and in those opening credits is great. And then some of the names you see are just superstars when it comes to Disney animators. Right. And so, and, and you can tell where like Claude Coates has some, some input in, you know, you can see, Claude Coates in the world building. You can see 
you know, some Ward Kimball in, in some of the ways that the structures are built, you know, so it's really cool to see those names and know what they've done for Disney and then kind of see where you can find their influence throughout the film. It's funny because I never realized it was Mary Blair until watching it recently over the last couple of years when I've been able to identify her work more easily because I think, you know, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, it stands out so much more. But now that I've gotten much more familiar with it, I was like, oh, how how did I never realize that this was her in the opening credits? It's just stunning, especially in, in the mermaid sequence, too. Yes, We're gonna absolutely. Get into that. Absolutely. I love that they take the time in the opening credits to call out the children's hospital for which Walt yes. Disney was able to get the rights from because J.M. Barry left the copyright to this children's hospital in London so that they would reap the benefits of the royalties from the book sales. And I, I just love that Disney called attention to it because they not only do it as a way of saying thanks, but I think they also knew that they were calling attention to something that can be inherently very sad, especially, you know, when you're about to go into an hour and 22 minute film about staying a child forever and never growing up. And these kids are dealing with very grown up things. Um, I, I think that that was outstanding. And I think that it just did more to kind of, uh, put a spotlight on these children's hospitals, that one specifically, but most of them in general. And I think that it really does a, a great job of setting the table for appreciating what this film is going to be about. I'm glad you bring that up now, because to me, part of the most interesting thing about Peter Pan is all of the lore surrounding it and the circumstances under which it was written and those bigger overall themes, because the the irony is that it is truly morbid what was happening behind the scenes. I mean, J.M. Barry, um, the reason that he made that donation was because he never had children himself. And that's why he was so close to the Lewin Davies family um, that inspired the, the characters, Peter, John, and Michael. Um, but if you go into Barry's history... Um, he lost his brother at a young age, and that's part of what plays into the Peter Pan character and the idea of never growing up, because in his mind, his older brother was always going to be a child, and he's sort of immortalized in that way. And the what also came from that was that he was forced to grow up very quickly to help take care of his mother, because she was very depressed after that happened. So, you know, you definitely see a lot of that in the story. And then um, as far as his relationship with the Lewin Davies family, um, they completely gloss over this in uh, Finding Neverland, which I love that movie, despite the inaccuracy of it. Um, those boys, I believe there were five children, Luke, correct me if I'm correct. wrong. Yeah, five um, total. A lot of them died in tragic accidents like I three, three of the five did yeah yeah one I believe drowned the other they thought it was like a suicide pact in college it was all just very very dark so you know to see this adaptation now of of this story and you know the disnification of it all uh it's very far from what was happening in life 
Yeah, and that's that's mainly the main theme of of Peter Pan. What I, you know, I, I think whenever you when you when you read the books, it's a little bit more apparent that when J.M. Barry wrote it, it was him trying to preserve or trying to have a part of his childhood live on. And so he was doing that through the, you know, through the kids who he he made, um, you know, the, the close bonds with, wrote those stories for them, and then to tragically lose them as well. It's just this, you know, this this complete loss of childhood, uh, complete loss of innocence. And um, there's a there there's some accounts of J.M. Barry saying that he really was kind of stuck in that sort of brain. Um, you know, his his brain development never really developed once he lost his brother. And so he was kind of this this adult in or a, a, a child in an adult body, um, very much like Peter Pan. And I, I can't remember what the name of the actual medical uh, sort of malady is, but it, it is referred to as Peter Pan syndrome. Right. And uh, mainly so that you are, you know, if you're if you don't develop past a certain age, um, that is uh, something that, you know, not only came from J.M. Barry, uh, but is named after a character that he created. So just this kind of interesting and very sad backstory of why the story was written in the first place. Yeah, and I mean, that that even carries over. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about cast in a little while, but, you know, then then you think about Bobby Driscoll. And Bobby. Have, I mm-hmm. mean, it's, exactly. it's it's an, it's crazy, right? That there there's so much there's so much dark in the lightness, right? It really is almost like that that poltergeist curse there's so much tragedy and death surrounding this amazing story yeah yeah it's it and well i'm not even i'm not even going to get into hook but it, it even trickles down to hook it does i mean it's 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 wild you know and like you never that's a thing like like and i think that that's maybe like um one of the great successes of the story right is that until you start delving in and doing research, like no one really puts all of those pieces together, right? And it makes it like, like it 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 adds almost to the lore of Peter Pan. It's like this like beautifully tragic story, and and it just piles on and piles on, right? But the tragedy isn't top of mind when you think of Peter Pan. Certainly not you know, the way that it's associated with the parks. But that that's why I compare it to Poltergeist, because to me, you think of Poltergeist and it's a great film, but like I think more the the conspiracy theory surrounding the production than I do about the actual film now. But I, I don't think that, that that it's the same case here. I think everybody just kind of separates it because it is such a great story. So let's get into it. Um, that opening narration, all this happened before and it will happen again. Um, not from the book. Those are not the opening words of the book. Uh, so I thought that that was kind of an interesting choice to open up the film in this way. But I do like that it sets up the stories about Peter, whether they're true or false, they exist in the real world. And it sort of gives him like this Mary Poppins quality of he's going to go to the children that need him. Um, and I felt like that was such an interesting way to position the opening of the film because to me and we're going to talk a little bit more about this I feel like Peter's the one who needs saving sometimes because he's never going to grow up um so again I mentioned it before just so many layers and I'm probably going to say that a million times in this review 
Yeah, in the opening narration, it also sets up the ending, right? Because it sort of is setting up, okay, if this has happened before again, then maybe Mr. Darling did see the ship sometime in his past, right? And maybe in the future, somebody else will see the ship or somebody else will be visited by Peter. So absolutely, it just kind of sets up the entire story to know that it's not only going to be like a fantastical story, but also it could happen to anybody at any time. Yes. And it does raise the question immediately, you know, to what you said, is Peter real or is Peter just, is Peter real in legend and, and that these children tell these stories and through, through the lore of Peter Pan, he has become a real being. And you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that they do a good job of sort of planting that early on. And I think we'll discuss whether we think he exists or not. Right. Because there is also the argument that Wendy's dreaming the whole time. And I think that this, this helps us answer that at the end. We'll put a pin in that for now. Um, because I, I think throughout the course of watching this film, um, at least growing up, my opinion kind of went back and forth, but I, I do feel that there is a definitive answer. And I, I feel like a lot of that is set up here. Um, I absolutely love the nursery and this introduction to Michael and John. I love the introduction to all of these characters. And I love how all of them individually, including the parents, define who Peter Pan is. Yes. I think that that's something that is sort of glossed over and overlooked. That we know, obviously, they're talking about the title character, and so many children are uh, aware of the stories of Peter Pan. They've read the stories or have been read the stories, right? But I think that this is a really interesting take that it it almost does become folklore because the, it, he's kind of like Davy Crockett, right? Because everybody is saying sort of who they think he is, whether it's John and Wendy and Michael talking about, you know, the swashbuckling and Captain Hook. The man, the myth, the legend. The man, the myth, the legend, or the father sitting there going, poppycock, you know, and kind of like casting him aside. Like, I think that you can draw a very parallel line between Peter and Davy Crockett. And and at the time that this film came out, you know, obviously Davy Crockett was was very, very popular in pop culture. They even give Nana a stance on whether or not she believes because she's the one who got his shadow. Yeah, and I, I think the, uh, the the interesting part to me is that whereas each one has their own stance and they, their own thing that they sort of attach to to the story, you know that that they all revere him. Even it seems that uh, that Mister Darling has this sort of reverence to Peter Pan, whatever you know, whatever it is. Even though he calls him Poppycock. It, he almost says it in a way that's that's like he's jealous that Peter Pan is taking the attention away from him and his kids have the attention on these stories rather than on 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 the father figure or almost fearful in a way like he almost gives the impression and I think it has to do with with the voice performance and just being so loud and so boisterous um I I almost feel like it gives it a quality of like this is dangerous talking about Peter Pan um, I want to bring something up that we will file under the category of things that made me go, huh, upon the rewatch now. Um, I always thought 
that Nana bringing the kids tonic was a medicine, much like they do in Mary Poppins after their day out when it rains. And, you know, I thought she was just giving them something to keep the cold away. But what I learned is that in Victorian era, it was very common to essentially drug your children so that they would go to sleep at night. So my question is, do we think that the darlings are having Nana drug the kiddos so they can enjoy their night out? All I know is that that tonic looks disgusting. Whenever it comes out of that bottle, I'm like, there's no way that I would be taking that nightly at all. And then of course, Nana, when she takes some and it's, it, it looks, you know, her reaction says it all. It is just as disgusting as it looks like in the animation. Exactly. And I think this is also where it can flip to the idea of, was this all a dream? Because you're knocking these kids out and maybe giving them very lucid dream. I don't know. Cough syrup dreams. I'm saying. Um, Hey, listen, I have said before, as a Disney adult, I am a proponent, especially when it's late at night at the Magic Kingdom, of getting a kid a fast pass on Mickey's Melatonin Adventure. <laughs> I am 100% on board with this. If this is what the parents are doing, good on you. Go have fun. Enjoy your night. Leave them with the dog. You're fine. Nothing is going to happen. Wendy is also old enough where she could be babysitting them. And I will die on that hill if she was too old to be in the nursery in the first place. I fully support Never Grow Up. But I don't understand why Wendy at, can we argue, maybe 12, 13 years old, is sharing a room with her two younger brothers. It's a giant room. The nursery's huge. It's not about space that, that I'm questioning here. It's true. And we don't know what the rest of the house looks like, granted, but you would think that there would be another space for them. And it seems like a pretty large town home there on the, you know, on the corner, nonetheless. So, um, yeah, I would I would absolutely agree. She's probably a little too old, but I think that her storytelling kind of shows that she is still invested in John and Michael. Right. Like she wants them to, to encourage their imagination. She wants to keep telling these stories. She's not doing it out of like responsibility or, you know, she's not doing it as saying like, oh, I got, you know, I have to babysit my, my kid brothers, right? She's doing it because she wants to and she wants to engage in those stories still. Well, we do know that there's another room for her because that's her father's whole thing is I'm going to move her out of the nursery. So I don't know if they're converting a guest. Or, I, I mean, I really don't care about the semantics, but I wonder what kind of world we would live in if that is how they went with the story where she was maybe already out of the nursery in her own room but she kept coming back to fill John and Michael's heads with these stories and um you know she's she's clearly not ready to grow up herself and maybe she needs to dip her toes back into the nursery every night and that's why she's clinging to these stories and that's where i almost feel like it would have given mr darling more motivation to squash the stories instead of everything in one fell swoop of nope no more stories and you're moving out of here and it it's almost so extreme too because it, like you're still a family you're still living in the house um so, you know, I, I think that would have been, I'm not saying that I would go back and change that, but it is just kind of something that I bump on a little bit now. And, you know, I, I wonder how that would have made her character a little bit different. 
I think that if there's any part of this story that a modern audience, you know, kids seeing it for the first time are not going to necessarily understand or connect with, it's why Wendy, who is the eldest daughter, is viewing getting her own bedroom as a punishment. Yes. I think that we understand it because it does a really good job of defining her character. It defines her as a person. But I do think that a modern audience now is going to look at that and kind of wonder, why is this a big deal? I mean, when this movie came out in 1953, I mean, remember something, you know, you've got Ricardo's are sleeping in separate beds on television not too far after that. You know what I'm saying? Like the twin beds in the the parents' room is is still very much a thing in the 50s. So there is a, a different viewpoint, I think, 70 years later where... This may be lost on some kids. I don't think it hurts the film, especially because if you kind of look at this, to me at this point, I sort of look at it as a period piece. I think it was sort of a period piece when they made it even in the 50s because they don't even have proper electricity. I mean, it's gas lights in the house, right? Right. And candles. So I think that if you look at it from that standpoint, it would hold up. But that's one area where I think, you know, a seven or eight year old kid especially especially you know if you've got that older sister you don't want her sharing a room with you and if you are the older sister you don't want to share a room with your little brother correct what i think holds up though is definitely the organized chaos that is this scene in the nursery yes poor nana is just trying to clean up those blocks. Like, how many times is she gonna have to rebuild that castle and also why can't michael do that himself he's old enough like the boys should also th- okay that that also puts a point for Wendy needs to move out and and move on is that the boys need to take a little responsibility and clean up after themselves. Yeah, and I, I will say there is a little bit of an undertone in this entire film about women sort of being the household. You know, you must clean up the household. The the men have too many important things to do. Uh, and so, but I also think that there's an under sort of an underlayer of the story where the women are there to save the day when Mrs. Darling comes in and finds his, his shirt, cleans his shirt for him and, you know, gets him all set to go for the party. It just, it, it kind of shows, yes, maybe, you know, it, women are seen as, as a, somebody to clean up after the household, but at the end of the day, you can't function without them. Uh, and so I, I love that portion of it. The organized chaos is beautiful animation. Uh, just the way that the blocks are organized, the way that sort of all their toys interact with one another, um, the the finding of the the pirate map, which is the shirt front, and then uh, you know later on with Michael and the buried treasure, it just I I, I really enjoy all of those little beats uh, to show that you know this is kind of to your point organized chaos uh, to try to get out the door and kind of get this story moving. I love the treasure map and the cufflinks. I I've always been drawn to that since I was a kid but to your point yes it's it's just so clever um what I can't believe gets overlooked though is you know he's upset about his shirt he can't find his cufflinks nobody cares that they ripped an entire bed sheet when they burst through the sail of the pirate ship um but you're right it, it's it all lends to that organized chaos of they just need to get out the door um what I definitely bump on is that Nana does have a doghouse inside fully support that it's right in the nursery and then Mr. Darling drags her outside and she's tied up 
not left out in the cold. I mean, okay, London, it's cold, it's rainy, but you kind of get the impression from the wardrobe that it's the summer, so I'll let that one slide. But well, they tell us it's a warm night, she'll be just fine. They they did, they did, but they do this in Lady and the Tramp too, and even though that's supposed to be in the South, like I take a lot of issue with leaving the dogs outside. But there is this really beautiful line where, you know, Mr. Darling is just sort of talking out loud and he tells Nana that sooner or later people have to grow up and then boom, you're back in the nursery, but mother, I don't want to grow up. It is just such a seamless transition. Um, I mean, your characters are pretty well developed at this point, but it really does give them that definitive stance. And I just love it. And what I love here is now as the parents leave, right, you get the introduction to Peter starting with the shadow that was left in the nursery even just his silhouette on the roof is beautiful absolutely stunning animation yes and you you can see where sort of the 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 magical sort of realism of the story comes to it, it you can see it starting to build and you can see there's just the silhouette and then you can just see kind of the band where uh it's actually kind of creepy with the where Tinkerbell kind of flies in front of his eyes and you see them kind of illuminated and then he's up on top of the roof. And then, you know, so it, it's kind of growing in sort of that anticipation of is what is, what is our, our title character actually going to look like? And what is the, the magical, you know, what, what is making him be magical, right? If you don't know anything about the story, these beats are really kind of setting those up for a, a great reveal whenever he finally comes through that window. Especially because when they do that with his eyes, it almost looks like a bandit's mask. So you really don't know if this is okay or not. All you know is that the children have been essentially drugged and left on their own. So it does kind of give it a little bit of a sense of danger. And the reveal of Peter when he does get to the nursery for the time was a very sort of uh, surprising reveal because remember Peter Pan, the book, the play, it had always been a female that had played Peter. Correct. And even like growing up in New York, we talked about this recently with some <laughs> friends, right? Was Kathy Rigsby played Peter Pan and she would play, what was it, the theater at Madison Square Garden? Yes. And it was like every year, Kathy Riz Rigsby is back. And they, it's for, for like 15 years, she came back and did it. I have to laugh. I'm sorry. <laughs> because when we were talking about this, um, we were talking about it with our friends, Joe and Tyler, who we've mentioned many a time on this show. Um, and... Uh, we're all obviously from Long Island, but Tyler's from Pennsylvania. So we were explaining to him how, and this also might be, you know, just a, a tri-state area thing where you just saw the commercial and it, it was always Kathy Rigsby's Peter Pan. And when we pointed out that it aired for like 15 years, Tyler in his mind sees this old woman like, okay, fellas, hoist me up. And she's having like a cigarette in the back alley. Yes, yeah, second start of the right. Let's go. And like now <laughs> it's all I can think about. But I think the choice to always have Peter played by a female had more to do with the logistics of the play than anything else. And just simply having someone who is a little bit lighter that they could lift and make fly. But they said this was, this was one the of first the first time. This yeah. was the first time you actually saw Peter Pan portrayed as as a boy. A boy, yeah. 
Which is really interesting. And uh, just on the on the Kathy Rigsby front, I had the VHS of that recording. Of, <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> of course I did. And I, I mean, that is one of my favorite intros of Peter Pan is just the flying straight up center stage through the window and doing kind of a front flip and landing. I mean, I, I will never forget that and having that as as what I always wanted to direct whenever I was uh, when I would direct shows and stuff. I'm like, I want to direct just that scene. That's it. Uh, and it, you know, is, is one of my kind of almost core memories of the Peter Pan is that, uh, kind of entrance, but the one here in the animated version, I think also does a great job of, of showing us the character, showing us sort of some powers that he has, right? The flying, uh, having Tink kind of fly around with him, uh, and, uh, and, and really setting up, I think, uh, what, you know, what we're going to find out about this character. This shadow chase is so iconic. This is just one of those things where, just animation is a medium. You you can't touch it because it's just so incredible what they were able to do. And um, there, you know, when we were doing our research for for this film, um, something that I completely took for granted was that Milk Milk Call said that um, his biggest challenge was to portray flying because you essentially have a human floating here. And I went, huh. Like, I just never considered that because when you think of flying, you think of like Dumbo or Zazu where you have that range of motion where there's a flapping of ears or wings and, and there's like a whole body effort that you are able to put into it to portray that movement. And here you have to give Peter a weightlessness, but he's not actually flapping his arms and I, I kind of had my mind blown when I learned that piece of information because it's just something that you totally take for granted. Which if you kind of push that forward throughout the story, you always see Wendy anytime that she tries to fly in Neverland yes. flapping her arms because that's her point of reference is birds who fly and flap their arms. And so I, I love that. Um, and then taking it uh, through a, a thread through the books all throughout the books, the Lost Boys refer to Wendy not as Wendy, but the Wendy Bird. Wendy Bird, and right. so that is a you know that is a trope again that, that kind of shows itself over and over that I, that I love. Uh, and you're right, seeing Peter fly the way that he does and how quick he is, he's down a shadow. Great, great scene. I also thought that Wendy doing the flap also had to do with her being injured, because I don't think that Michael and John do it as much. I I've I have to watch again and pay closer attention to that. But I also thought that had to do, well, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Um, I think it had to do with the fact that the Lost Boys, you know, hit her down out of the sky and, and she was hurt and her pixie dust maybe waned a little bit. Um, but I think it also has to do with, you know, thinking happy thoughts and once in Neverland, she's a little bit stressed out. They're away from home. They're in danger. Um, so maybe she's not so quick to be able to think of something happy. And I think it also has to do with sort of keeping Peter's attention. Um, because now, obviously, Wendy's awake and she sews Peter's shadow back on, which is another just iconic moment. But to me, this conversation sets up their entire relationship because, um, you know, Peter 
is stuck in that adolescent age and he has really no social cues. So she's rambling on and on and on because she's just so excited to meet him. And, and, you know, this is what I've heard about you and here's the legend and all this. And he girls talk too much and she gets all huffy about it. He doesn't know any better. He doesn't know that he's being rude. Um, and that's also going to translate over to the way that he treats Wendy throughout the rest of this film because he interacts with all of these other girls like the mermaids and Tiger Lily and he doesn't understand why that's ticking her off. I love that he gets drawn in because he loves listening to stories told about himself. Mm. Like there's a certain bit of narcissism here, but it's adolescent narcissism, right? To, to kind of go off of what you're talking about with not understanding the social cues, not understanding the social norm, because you have children raising children. The only adults are Captain Hook and Smee and and his crew. So when you think about what the you know, what the influences are. Not a not a strong parental influence at all. So he looks at Wendy very much like, oh, woman, mother, come and keep telling my stories. Cause because ultimately what he's upset about is that if she grows up and she goes and leaves the nursery, no more stories. He can't hear his stories anymore, and no one else will tell his stories. So there is a selfishness here, but I don't mean that in I, I don't want I don't want it to be taken with like a negative connotation. It's a very innocent sort of selfishness that you would only see in a five or six year old child. It's a little bit of an ego. And I think that also plays into this character just wanting to be immortalized. It's not enough to never grow up, but it's also he he also needs I don't want to say the fame, but he need, he needs like the glory that comes along with it. And to, to Sean's point about the narcissism, the, that is a through line throughout. I mean, I think the crowing is a perfect example of that, right? Yes. Um, in, in the book, it, you know, the, the book starts with every boy except one grows up. So it says there's one special boy out there. And I think Peter embodies that and is like, hey, I'm going to show off whenever I can. One of my favorite lines of the book that is, is present multiple times throughout the book is Peter will do something and then he will say, oh, the cleverness of me. Yes, perfect encapsulation of I am, I'm going to praise myself because I am so clever. Right. And so, but he's probably always been told that he's probably only heard these stories about him as the hero. So why wouldn't he think that way? I wish they had incorporated that line into the film. Same. Uh, there's a couple of things that I wish I, I, I miss the line, boy, why are you crying? Yes. I wish that that were present. And then I, I, for the life of me can never understand why uh, the the first interaction when they're getting the pixie dust and flying out the window, why that is is just spoken instead of a song. I, I never understood. It. I don't know if the, the children just didn't have the vocal capacity to to pull off that song or or what, but they don't even really do it in a sing-song way. It's sort of just spoken in rhyme, but not in rhythm. Very interesting choices, I thought. And then you have a full chorus punch punch in the rest of it. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, let's talk about this because this flying scene, and we are going to talk about the music later on, but I, it wasn't until this recent viewing, and I don't know why, maybe it's because we are down here now and we're at, we're on Disney property bi-weekly at this point, right? 
not that we didn't come down here frequently when we lived in New York, but obviously not as frequently as being there multiple times a month. But there was something about watching it this time as the whole flying scene and leaving the nursery and, you know, landing on the clock at Big Ben, all of that, right? It only hit me for the first time this week where I said to myself, this scene changed the world. It did. I don't think I ever really appreciated this scene until now. And, and maybe it's because I'm looking at it through the the eyes of somebody in their late 30s. Maybe it's because we're, you know, an arm's length from the magic. I, I don't know what it is, but there was something about it that, like, I almost had to, like, stop for a second and think. And I I took it in in a way that I've never taken it in and I appreciated it in a way that I've never appreciated it before. It is the Beauty and the Beast chandelier shot. I think part of that is because of the song and you're focused on the lyrics and the second start of the right and straight on till morning. And I think watching it as a kid, you're more focused on like, yeah, let's get to Neverland. But watching it now with adult eyes, I, I never took for granted the animation of Big Ben of Big Ben because I thought that that was stunning. But you're right. It it just does put it in a totally different lens where you're not so focused on let's get to Neverland and you can just appreciate that that moment. Another um, thing that I want to file under things that made me go, huh, in the rewatch. I don't know if this was done intentionally or if it just sort of happened that way, but I noticed um, when they think they're happy thought and they're, they're able to fly, um, Michael and Nana go up immediately. And I thought that that was so interesting because you have the youngest child and the dog and they're the innocents here. Um, whereas with Wendy and John, John's very scientific. He's very analytical. And Wendy is on the cusp of adulthood and they don't go up right away. And I'm wondering if that was intentional to sort of give them that beat of like, you know, they have to think about it a little bit harder. I like that. I, I never thought of it that way. Uh, I, what, what I always think is, is really impressive are what the characters think of as their happy thoughts, right? Wendy as Mermaid Lagoon, John as Pirates, uh, Michael as Indian Brave. Those are the things that when they get to Neverland, they first do and they first seek out. Uh, and then I think with each one of them, that's where they each shine, right? So Wendy maybe not shines with the with the mermaids, but that is, that's her place that she wants to go. That is, is a key moment for her in, in the story. John with the pirates searching for the pirates and, and being the leader. And then Michael, whenever they get to the Indian camp, uh, you know, are, you know, those are kind of their beats throughout the story. And those are the things that bring them happy thoughts. So I, I, I love kind of that through line as well. Th this scene, this flying scene in particular, what strikes me now are there are six words that we hear in the parks over and over and over. And Bobby Driscoll's delivery of them gives me chills every single time. And those are, here we go, off to Neverland. Yes. Those six words and the way that they are delivered, I will not do them justice. So I will not do my my, my uh, Bobby Driscoll impress, uh, impersonation here today. But those six words, you hear them a lot. Wishes would not be the same show uh, without those six words. Um, and it's Sean's point. I mean, it just, it opened up this entire world for us uh, at that point. Um, and so I, I love that you get those, that delivery and those six words 
into this blind scene to Neverland with a stop at Big Ben, which is beautiful. I love that when we get to Neverland, we are immediately introduced to Captain Hook in what I think is one of the most forgotten about character introductions. Certainly, I think one of the most forgotten about villain introductions. It's fun. It's fantastic. It's fantastical. But I think for the reasons that we've talked about, and you know, Luke, what you just mentioned, with that whole flying scene being so closely associated with Disney parks, that's where the focal point is. And I understand why, but I think it I, I think it inadvertently casts a shadow on the introduction of one of the most influential and one of the best characters to ever grace the silver screen. Right. Well, I like that they also pair back because we're anticipating seeing Neverland, but we really don't get a good look at it until Peter and the kids get there. Here, it's almost, you know, you you essentially transition right to the pirate ship. Um, I wish the pirates looked more like they've been picked up in different countries because I feel like the concept art really demonstrated that. Um, and it, it looked more like something you would see on Pirates of the Caribbean where, you know, they're traveling a lot. They're stopping in different places. They're acquiring crew. And I wish that they had had more fun animating these pirates and making them look a little bit different with different clothes that are inspired by different places and um, a, a little bit more diversity, too. Um, I feel like they kind of missed the mark a little bit there to have some really fun pirates the way that you would see on Pirates of the Caribbean, the ride. Um, but I, I just love this introduction. We'll break down the, char the characters later, but um, I, I agree with you. I feel like this is such a forgotten moment. Um, and it's a, it's a really important moment that, you know, you have this over the top captain and he's kind of flamboyant. So you do forget how, evil he is because one of the first things that he does is shoots down his crew who's annoying him by singing and you know later he's going to deliver a bomb to a child and I feel like all of those things get glossed over because it is such a comical performance but watching it now I'm like my gosh this is so perfectly balanced because you do have horrible evil cut against this comedy and and balancing that out with mr smee forget it it's brilliant all of it brilliant i got no notes those are that was perfectly said yeah i, I do love this intro i think my, my favorite part about it is that you you meet kind of the, the pieces before you meet the man right you meet the you see the pirates you see that they're like throwing knives at his door with his picture on it then you see smee kind of slowly backing out so you meet his crew you meet his right hand man and then you get the reveal and to your point, the, the the shooting of the guy playing the accordion on the top mast is top notch. And again, if we if we want to play it through, uh, in Hook, the scene where he shoots through uh, Peter Banning's checkbook to shoot one of his own pirates is just it, the the great through lines uh, through some great moments in cinema with Captain Hook. I absolutely love it. And what I forgot about until this week is that they do lean into the notion that the reason why the crocodile is pursuing Captain Hook is because he's hungry for flesh. I remember it from Hook, but Hook obviously is live action, 
and it's it's a family film, but you can get away with it being a little bit more adult than perhaps an animated cartoon. But I forgot that they really go for it, and it's a very quick line, and there's so much happening especially with the musical numbers and the songs, that it's easy to kind of forget about that. But, I mean, that's exactly it. Like, I forgot that that Hook literally calls out that he's hungry for flesh, and that's why he has to avoid this crocodile. I forgot that too, but I I think that has more to do with the crocodile just being so symbolic of death. And he is the ticking clock, and um, the pirates are some of the only adults in Neverland. So, you know, it may be a little heavy handed and overt, but they are using it to symbolize that, you know, the clock is ticking on these, on these aged people. Yeah. I also think it's a really, if you think of it as being told a story being told through a child's eyes, right. It it is kind of comical that there is this croc who is, only has eyes for one person because he had a taste of it one time. And now the crocodile has to fixate on that one, you know, person, that person being Captain Hook. Uh, and then kind of take that one step further, the intro to, to Captain Hook, it's, you know, here, here are some things that I think a pirate would do. Ha ha, he shoots his own crew. Ha ha, his crew is, you know, spitting knives at a door uh, that has his picture on it, right? So so I, I sometimes see it that way as well, is that the the introduction is that of what a child would think that Captain Hook is doing and what the croc would, you know, have that hunger for, that appetite for. He's got a taste for evil. And immediately what I love that they do here is that they set up Tinkerbell as another adversary. Like, I'm, she's not a villain, but you also find it impossible to root for her because we didn't talk about this an awful lot in the nursery that... Yeah, shame on us. We glossed over Tank. Well, she... Because she spends most of that opening scene in that drawer, right? But she is doing so many important things. She is checking out her reflection. She, like... Give me some bratty tank. I just love her. That was one of the things that I took away most from this movie as a kid. It's one of the things that I enjoy most about it on rewatch. Um, and just the animation itself. I'm sure we'll talk more about this later when we, you know, really break down the character. It's just incredible how they make her glow like that. Yeah, the animation is outstanding. And they do a good job of setting up that she's a brat and setting up a little bit of jealousy because even though she's not romantically linked to Peter, she is the only female that Peter's ever known. So now Wendy comes into the picture and childishly, it's like your favorite toy. It's your favorite toy until your next favorite toy, right? So now you've got Wendy in the picture. It's the first time that Tink's sort of been cast aside. She's been cast aside for another female. And you see that there's, you know, a little bit of a jealousy there. And obviously that becomes a through line throughout the film. And Captain Hook calls that out specifically later, right? But this is where you really start to see that her wheels are turning. And she's not just a secondary character that's just there for her pixie dust to make them fly. Like, she's going to play a big part in this film. And to immediately, and shows how smart she is, right? Immediately, when Hook starts to attack Peter, 
she tells the Lost Boys, it's really Wendy. Mm-hmm. And that you have to go after Wendy. Because she's trying it, everything that she can. Not to eliminate John and Michael. Just Wendy. I almost wish that they would have had Tink. And the reason that she feels threatened by another girl. I almost wish it was because they posed her as, I'm the maternal one. I'm the one who guides him. Um you know, and, and she feels threatened by, you know, not that, that Wendy might be attracted to Peter. It's just that now she's being brought here to be the mother. And Tink is kind of like, well, I'm the HBIC here. Um, but I feel like that would have played a little bit more or a little bit too psychological if Tink did have that maternal instinct towards Peter. And I don't think that if that was the case, all of the whole thread of her trying to have Wendy killed, it completely falls apart. But I kind of wish we had a little bit more motivation in her jealousy, not just the presence of another female, because we have that, like, you know, she doesn't, she's not that way towards Tiger Lily. She's not that way towards the mermaids. It's just towards Wendy. And I'm wondering, maybe it's just, I don't want her on my turf. It's it's me and the boys. That's how it is. But um, I feel like that is the only detriment to having her not speak is that we don't we don't really get that why of, you know, it, it's got to be deeper than jealousy. We need to know where the jealousy comes from that she wants to have Wendy killed. The only thing that I can assume is that with Tiger Lily, with the chief, that's all a part of the game. Yes. It's 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 all sort of a fantasy. Wendy is an actual person. She's not a part of the game. She's going to make independent decisions. She's got independent thoughts. She's she's going to be sort of like the fly in the ointment, right? Mm-hmm. She's she's completely unique to this fantasy world where even even if we're going to assume that none of this is a dream, it's all rigged. It's 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 like it's like WWF, right? It's all rigged. It's all fake based on Peter's control, Peter's imagination. Even with Hook. And they do more of this in the actual film Hook and spoiler, they do more of this in Peter Pan and Wendy where there's no Peter Pan without Captain Hook. They don't really lean into that in this film mm-hmm. where they need each other mutually. But to bring in somebody completely green to Neverland, it totally changes their perspective and it changes the course, right? It's it's kind of that, ha I worked it in. It's kind of the back to the future thing. <laughs> like you bring, yeah, I got it. But it is, it is the back to the future thing. When you bring something in that's that's not organic to that setting, it can change everything. That's the only reason why I feel like Tink is okay with Tiger Lily. She's okay with the mermaids. And why I say that it, this is really the only other female that Peter has an interaction with because if Peter's controlling all of this and it's all a part of the game, it's all rigged. It, it's all, it, none of it's going to change because they're going to do the same thing again tomorrow. This is completely different. It changes the formula. That's a great point. And, oh, okay. Maybe that is where she is sort of maternal towards Peter is because she just needs to make sure that he's happy and that everything is the way he needs it to be to keep this 
illusion going for himself? See, and I kind of think of it as Tinkerbell is the intelligence, right? So she is the intelligence factor. If you think about the Lost Boys, you think about the pirates, you think about how the the Indians are depicted. It it there's not a ton of intelligence on that island, on Neverland. Even to Peter, he he, you know, he comes up with plans, but they're kind of sea of his pants, the kind of improvisation, let's just do whatever I feel like at the time. I feel like Tinkerbell represents that structure and that intelligence. Uh that she provides to that entire crew. Um, and she has a leg up on, you know, on Hook, on Smee, on all of the Indians. So uh, when somebody else is brought in who is displaying a level of intelligence that nobody else has, i.e. Wendy, that's where the jealousy kicks into place. And yes, it is kind of portrayed in a love interest or a r romantic way in the film. But uh, at the end of the day, if you think of it as, as Peter's intelligence or the, the intelligence of Neverland, uh, embodied in Tinkerbell. That could be another way to, to kind of think about it. It's a great point. So now that we're here and we've got Tinkerbell, she gets her one-week banishment because he's going to... Peter is going to banish her for life and Wendy talks him out of it. And again, very childishly, you're banished for life. She was like, don't banish her. Okay, maybe just a week. You know, again, very quick, very childish and, and changing his mind on the fly. But what you have happened now is um, the introduction to the idea of Tiger Lily and that Hook is going to kidnap her in order to get the whereabouts of Peter's hideout because ultimately he's just pursuing Peter this entire time. Right. Um, and Peter and Wendy, now everybody kind of sets off to do their own thing, right? Peter and Wendy set off to go to Mermaid Cove because that's where Wendy wants to go. And um, you have the Lost Boys and John and Michael. They set off to go follow the leader because they say, "We're let's go fight the Indians, right? And we don't know yet that it's a part of the game that they play routinely. Um, but it's sort of interesting that almost as soon as you get them to Neverland, Peter and Wendy are doing their own thing. Hook is doing his own thing. John and Michael and the Lost Boys are doing their own thing. Like, you, you just immediately split them up and send them in three different directions. But I love that we're exploring Neverland. You know, you've got that beautiful money shot when they arrive before shoot, before Hook starts shooting the cannons off at them. Um, and, and it's just so stunning. Like, I, I'm... I love that we get the opportunity to explore it because, you know, just seeing even even later on on Hook's map, there's just so much that's there. And I love that the animators allowed us to play in the space with these characters. Yeah, and that, that is a, a, a part of the, the film that I think is super successful is that they try to show you different parts of Neverland and show you that this place can be so much more than just, you know, pirates or Indians or mermaids. Like there is so much out there that is yet to be explored. I always love the scene, the following the leader scene, and you're seeing the different animals that are there. You've got yes. the monkeys, you've got the rhinos. I kind of want to explore that a little bit more. Uh, I would love to just see kind of what those look like. But again, from a child's imagination, it would be really cool if a monkey steals my hat and then gives it back, right? Or if that rock actually turned out to be a rhino. Um, I just, I, I love that there are those little beats that you can pick up on. Uh, and and there's so much to explore within Neverland. Uh, it's great that there are other kind of avenues that you can do that, you know, later with, if it's Return to Neverland, 
uh, or if it's, you know, uh, Peter and the Star Catchers, things like that, that, that do explore those other parts of Neverland. Um, I love that, that you get a glimpse of that here. It is a really great sequence. And, you know, we'll talk about the song a little bit later, because while the lyrics might not hold up, I think that it's important to your point to, you know, explore all the different facets of Neverland, but it's also good character development for the Lost Boys because all we've seen them do is carry out Tink's orders to this point. They're not really thinking for themselves, but now we get to see a little bit more personality come through. It is cool to see John and Michael kind of getting to live out those stories that they had you know, just heard about before from Wendy. Now they're actually in it. You know, they're they're going through the woods. They're trudging through the underbrush. Uh, it's just it's fantastic. And I I I had the a another core memory with Peter Pan with me is I had one of those you know best of Disney soundtrack CDs back yep. in the in the early '90s. And I will always always remember uh, like never forget John. You be the leader. I will strive to be worthy of my post. And then yes. going into the leader and so it's funny because when you listen to that whole there's a whole exchange before that right of dialogue between peter and john and wendy and and whatnot but when that when peter says john you be the leader it just clicks and i'm like i'm back in the car listening to that sound that you know song over and over again so um that that that's just a, a memory that pops up every time that we get to that scene i think that that song was also on the Disneyland sing-along VHS tape. I know it was on one of them, but I think it was on the Disneyland one. There were a few of the songs on the Disneyland VHS tape that like almost didn't make sense belonging on that VHS tape. Um, But they, they worked it in there anyway. No, I think you're right because of all the things to take away from this film and like all the scenes that I remember that's a standout, but those were not necessarily characters that I gravitated towards. And I think part of that is because of that sequence being isolated and watching it so many times in a different way. I, I, I'm like 99.9% sure that you're right. Um, so now we're over to Mermaid Lagoon with Wendy. Um, absolutely stunning. We hit on it before, you know, this is more Mary Blair artwork. Um, I love everything about this scene. The color, the the effects in the water, it's just stunning. Um, and I think that this is also an important scene for character because this also reinforces the idea that Peter is trapped as an adolescent because he loves all these girls doting on him and he doesn't realize how much it is really pissing off Wendy at this point. Yeah, it's sort of interesting that Wendy does get as upset as she does. I I honestly am not sure. I think this does more for Peter's character than it does for Wendy. Because on the one hand, you're right. Peter is just in love with this idea of being doted on by other girls. Or just doted on, period. Period. Like you, you brought up before. And this is the world that he has created. On the other hand, like... Wendy knows the stories of Peter Pan. She she tells the stories of Peter Pan. If there is one, and I'm not going to call it a failure because I don't think that, I personally don't think that there's any failure in this film. But if there is one part of her character that they that is a little weak, it's that I think that they play up on her jealousy as a means of 
having her see the value in growing up a little bit and, and being being the calm in the chaos because that's ultimately where this goes right is that she gets fed up with the chaos and even she looks through okay like there's never grow up but there's being a, there's being childish and we have to kind of strike that balance in between and face the inevitability that is growing up and i at times i feel like she just snaps into being you know she almost comes off like a jealous girlfriend and I think that's where they struck the balance absolutely perfectly because, you know, we talked about it before. Wendy is on that cusp, whether she is 13 or maybe even a little bit older, because I kind of got the impression that John was maybe around 12. So maybe she is more like 13, 14. But I think that's where the jealousy hits perfectly because we sort of well, we did skip over it. Um one of the most iconic moments in this film is I'd like to give you a kiss. And Peter gets all freaked out that she's like leaning into him. And, you know, that's where the, the thimble comes in. Um, but I think, you know, they set up that Wendy, she's heard of the legend. Now she gets to meet him. I think she had a crush on him to begin with. Now she's got a chance to interact with him. She's totally got a thing for him. And now he's, you know, he completely forgets her. He leaves her stranded and he's got all these other girls surrounding him thinking absolutely nothing of it. I, I think they hit it right where it needs to be as far as her being a jealous teenager. Yeah. And I think that the, the, the interesting part of the mermaid scene to me, I, I think first of all, it is beautiful. The, the mermaids are beautiful. The animation, the water is great where it, it almost doesn't hit for me is because I know the book so well. And in the book, she is expecting what we see in the movie However, she gets a little bit less mermaid, a little bit more siren, and right. a little bit more sort of a darker portrayal of mermaids who are just there trying to drown her. And that is that is literally all that they try to do in the book. And so the only interactions that you really see in the book is her wanting to, to see these things that she thinks are going to be so, you know, magical and magnificent and something that she wanted to embody only to be very disappointed and instead tried to basically, you know, they try to drown her rather than fill her with awe. They try to, to kill her. And so uh, Peter has to save her from that as well. And so to to the point that Sean was trying to make earlier, I think that that this point in, in the movie, they obviously weren't going to portray mermaids like that. So they did it the best way that they could to show, hey, maybe I'm kind of fed up with this childishness, right? And so that's, that's where I think it does succeed. But that is a, a big you know, differing mark from, from book to, to film. I understand why they didn't do it because this is supposed to be sort of a light and fluffy sequence. It, it is in a beautiful setting. So you're not going to bring down the room with these crazy vicious mermaids. But I, I think that is a little bit of a weaker point because they're splashing her. And then they say we were only trying to drown her, which is the nod to what is happening in the book. But splashing and trying to drown are two completely different things. And obviously they're not going to show that in a Disney film because it's horrible. But to see Wendy get a little water thrown in her face and then to say we were trying to drown her, it, there's just a huge disconnect. And I, I think you're right to your point, Luke. Um, it would have been a little bit more effective if we put Wendy in like a little bit more peril here. 
Well, and you couldn't really go to the dark there, right? Because immediately, one of the next scenes is in Skull Rock, which is, is a very dark scene. And so I think it would be really difficult to have those back to back. The book, it happens a little bit in a different order, right? Wendy's actually in a, uh, they, when she gets shot by Slightly, they build a house around her in the woods. Yes. And she stays in the house for, quote unquote, for, for days. And that is how they are found out by the Indians and kidnapped by the Indians because they are not in their hideout. They're in this house that they built around Wendy after they shot her. So, you know, just a couple of different beats that are, that are, uh, that kind of make the story rearrange. Um, but, you, you know, you, you couldn't go from dark mermaids to dark skull rock scene. That just would, would not play. And, and I think too much darkness is, is not a good thing, especially in this world. Yeah, you, you needed the fluff in between, totally. Well, I was going to bring that up. Now, I've not read Peter Pan, not the not the original telling. You know, we all had, like you said, the Golden Book, or we had a story, a version of the story read to us, you know, at the library when you're in first grade, right? Um, but now, like, I'm intrigued. Like, I may have to hammer through this book sometime in the next week <laughs> before we get to Peter Pan and Wendy. But the thing is, my understanding is that this is this is very different from from the book, and and that the book is much darker. But I think for the for the story that they were trying to tell, and I think for the world that Walt Disney was trying to develop here because Walt Disney himself is, is a, he was, he was a very smart man who spent most of his life in debt. Most people don't appreciate that. Everybody assumes that he was rich and famous. Well, he was famous, but he was not very rich. Walt Disney was not a wealthy man because if he got $2 million, he spent three, but he was doing that because he was always thinking ahead. He was a visionary, but he never grew up. That's why he needed Roy, right? So I think that that's very much why he developed this as a much lighter film. And this came after Man in the Woods, right? This came after Bambi. Bambi works to be darker. Bambi works to be coming of age. I think for what he was trying to accomplish here, it, it to your point, Luke, I think it worked to not make this such a dark world. But... I mean, you're right. Like, there are moments in this film, having not read the books myself, where there there seems like there are just little pieces that are missing. And you're right. Like, to sit there and just splash her and say, we're only trying to drown her, I viewed that as more of a... They're doing it for comedic purposes, mm -hmm. perhaps juvenile comedic purposes, uh, instead of just taking her and trying to drag her down. But there, I don't think you want to necess necessarily see Wendy in peril. I think you just want to see her putting up with some sort of nuisance. Because you'll note, like, in the film, every time... I mean, there's a lot of peril with the pirates, but that doesn't even seem to be what upsets Wendy. It seems that Wendy's upset by the little... This is a nuisance. That's annoying. This is a nudge. This is a push. That that kind of is what gets to her, and that's what you know ultimately pushes her to want to go back to London. To circle back to what you were saying, um, just about needing that moment to play for comedy. Um, it, it's you know you both made the point. Luke said that um, it would have killed the pacing and I completely agree. And, and you're saying that it's playing for comedy. I think it's also important to look at the time period in which this was being produced, which we haven't really talked about yet. And I feel like this is a good place to get into that a little bit before we get to back to Skull Rock and saving Tiger Lily. Um, Disney 
I, I mean, I don't think it needs explaining why he was attracted to this story. He himself never wanted to grow up. This is a no brainer. This is so, I mean, if there is a movie that I think is most connected to Walt, this has to be it. Um, And he acquired the rights to this pretty early on. I believe he bought them from the children. And I think that's also why they were in the opening credits. I think he made a very large donation to the children's hospital and that's how he got the rights to this. Um, But he got them in 1939, I believe. So this was in production for about 13 years. And, um, you know, you think about there's two wars in the interim. Um, They had this storyboarded by 1941. So they were ready to go. And then they had to put it on ice because of World War II. Um, So, you know, this was a story that he was trying to tell for quite a while. But now that it's coming out, post-war I mean it's it's not coming out immediately after World War II but I think part of that is that transition into these fairy tales when you think about you know Cinderella Sleeping Beauty coming out they are trying to do these more light-hearted stories just to be a little bit more uplifting it's a great point and if you if you think about it in the Disney sort of release history right you and, and we've seen this pattern with Disney where there's one that's a, a massive hit and then another one that comes out that's a disappointment. And they have to then come out with something else that's a massive hit so that they can also fund those other things they want to do. Previously, before this, 1951 is Alice in Wonderland, which was not a great success at the box office. So Peter Pan was that story to come on the heels and kind of be that that smash hit. I think because of the familiarity of the story, finally bringing that to screen, changing the story to make it more, you know, more kind of lighthearted, fluffy, and embodying that kind of bit of adventure. I mean, there really is something in this film for everybody, if you if you think about it, right? All ages, all, uh, if you're if you're a, a young boy, a young girl, there's something in there that you can gravitate to. And so that's, I think that it was a great success to kind of have that come in and be be the hit that it was, um, you know, in, in kind of the, the history of the production. This is one of three films that as you go back and you look at the history of Disney animation, that is a benchmark for saving Disney animation. Yes. This was one. The Jungle Book was another. And the the last, believe, and it surprises a lot of people to hear this, was Oliver and Company. Like, and, and the thing is, all three of those films, Oliver and Company being the most of the three, that they're not recognized for what they did. This film is the most recognized, but I think and it's kind of been a through line through our conversation. It's recognized because of what it has done for Disney parks. You know, like no, uh, very few people recognize Oliver and company. Very few people recognize the jungle book for their contributions. I mean, the jungle book, yes, had the music, but no parks attractions associated with either of those two films. This is rooted, whether it be you know, Walt Disney's Disneyland on television, Tinkerbell was a big part of that, and obviously now with the parks, like, this of the three is the one that is the most recognized, but you're right, I mean, had this not been a hit, this would have been the end of Disney animation, especially because Walt was starting to transition into television and live action. Like, it, it's funny, like, every so often we get these films that come around and save Disney animation. I think someday we're going to learn that Frozen probably did that as well. No, unless we forget, too, the transition to television was not 
all sunshine and rainbows. I mean, Walt made it work because he realized that there was an opportunity to speak directly to his audience every single week. Um, but when TV was first introduced, the, the major studios were all afraid of it because they were afraid that people were not going to come out and see these movies in theaters anymore because now you've got this thing in the comfort of your own home. And I'm sure that the money that Peter Pan did bring in is probably what helped fund a very successful television career for the or for lack of a better word but um a, a successful introduction into the television industry for this company well even by today's standards if you look at peter pan's box office numbers adjusted for inflation they would consider this movie to be a flop it, it, it adjusted for inflation through the initial run plus the re-releases, this movie has made less than a half a billion dollars at the box office. Which, if you hear half a billion dollars, you think, my God, this is so much money. By today's standards, it's it's insane to say it. It's not. You know, the fact that you could have a movie, that's how the studios look at these things now. The fact that this movie would not even break a half a billion dollars at the box office, they'd throw their hands up and say it was a failure. It's, it's insane. Or they put it on their streaming service, but that's a conversation for another day. Let's go back to Skull Rock and Saving Tiger Lily. Look, this is my favorite scene of this entire movie. I, I absolutely love the scene from start to finish. Uh, there, there's some animation, interesting things that happen in this scene that I, that I don't love. But other than that, the, the dialogue, the kind of interplay between Peter and Captain Hook and Smee, Wendy's part in everything, having Tiger Lily there as sort of the, you know, the, the MacGuffin that you're trying to say that, you're, that, you, that you need to, to go. And then Peter just forgetting all about her at, by the end of it. I think it's just, uh, I, I think it's a, a wonderful scene. It's beautifully drawn, beautifully animated. Um, TikTok is, uh, you know, a star or the star of this scene. And I just, I, I, this is the scene, anytime that I have this movie on, I stop what I'm doing and I, and I hone in 100% on this scene because I, I, I love it so much. I could not agree more. Um, I love TikTok breaking the fourth wall as he's about to enter the cave. I, I wish we saw more of that in not only this film, but just see it more in animation. Like it, it's just such a brilliant look right at the audience of like, you know, I'm going to get him or, or I'm up to no good. I, I just love that moment. Um, couldn't agree more. The whole thing is just beautifully animated. I love, and, and I'm wondering now that I'm saying it out loud, if this was intentional, they really are playing with the shadows. And I wonder if that's just sort of a callback to Peter. Um, this is my favorite scene though, for Peter's character. Uh, I love how he is toying with hook. I mean, it's funny just to see, and this is just, you know, it, it's just part of the medium and part of the fun that they're having where obviously they got, the voice actor to do Captain Hook's lines as they're going through Peter. But it it's just such a great comedic moment. It's great for the character. And I absolutely love the scene. I love the detail in Skull Rock. Yes. I think the setting is incredible. And what I like that they do here is that Wendy really is that voice of reason because let's call it what it is. I mean, Peter is ready to feed Hook to TikTok, and he's laughing about it. He thinks it's funny 
that he's about to feed a human being to a crocodile. And in spite of the fact that Hook has tried to kill them, and the fact that he has kidnapped Tiger Lily, Wendy is still the one sitting there saying, this is wrong. Like, it's not funny. This isn't a game. This is wrong. I also love how they're toying with Smee in this scene. Poor Smee. Put her back. Take her out. Put her back. Take her. I said nothing of the sort. The whole thing. So funny. They just gaslight Smee so bad in this scene. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that what, what really works for this is that they keep having the quick glances back to Tiger Lily as the tide is rising. Yes. And, and then you go back to, to Wendy being so worried, you know, we, we did save her and if you stop. And Peter's just like, you know, I'm going to use my hat and, and mimic Hook. And then I'm going to fly around and, and grab his, that, 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 that's, I think that's the two favorite moments of the scene. One, when Peter's flying around and he takes the pistol from Hook and hands it to Smee and says, <laughs> try your luck, Mr. Smee. Yes. And then, you know, has him basically like try to shoot at, at Hook. Hilarious. And then when Hook and Peter Pan are fighting on the edge of the rocks and Peter Pan keeps stepping back out onto thin air and then Hook goes out after him to, to keep fighting and, and then, you know, Hook ends up falling. It just, I, I, I think it works on, on every level. Uh, and shows just kind of the the boyishness and the childishness that Peter embodies. And then, you know, you have the actual stakes that are are there. Uh, and then again, to, to finish off the scene by Peter almost just leaving without remembering to save Tiger Lily and, and Wendy having to kind of ground him back to earth to say, you know, go get her. <laughs> Let's finish what you came here to do. You know, uh, it's just, I, I think it's a brilliant scene. Something you just said, though, makes me view it completely differently because I just got done saying like it is my favorite Peter moment because he's he's toying with Hook and I I always viewed the tide rising as you know they're raising the stakes they're putting Tiger Lily in peril but it's because of what we talked about before with the narcissism and a little bit of ego now that I'm thinking about it this is all a performance of Peter's it's eyes on me and he almost does lose Tiger Lily in the process I don't know if I like this scene so much yeah, anymore. See, he could have swooped in and he could have cut her loose right away, but instead he decides to toy with them all and, and at the end of the day almost loses Tiger Lily. Right. And in the process, almost eliminates Hook, almost by, not by accident, but, you know, it's sort of that uh, he had to um, basically be like save himself. Hook had to save himself and Smee to kind of get him out of there. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's an interesting uh, development for the character to show that he really doesn't care about anything but himself and showing off and being a boy. Speaking of Smee, I love this next scene. I feel like we have not talked about Mr. Smee enough. He is just stepping all over his own two feet, making every effort to make sure that Hook is comfortable and no one's disturbing him. And yet it's juxtaposed by him nailing a sign to the door that says, do not disturb while the captain has a splitting headache. It's just such a brilliant comedic moment. Um, and I'm sure we're going to talk more about this when we break down character, but I, we would be remiss not to hit on them now, at least. Uh, this is Frank and Ollie's animation and it just shines right through. Um, just the physicalness of it all um the way that there's even though hook does nothing but insults me there's just still that 
brotherly relationship because they do need each other. Um, I, I feel like that just all comes through so beautifully here. They were Gaston and LeFou before Gaston and LeFou. Yes. Yeah. Love that. Love that. Absolutely true. Uh, and now after all of this, we get Tiger Lily back and you get this scene with the chief and with the tribe where Peter is now smoking the peace pipe, which you'd never see. Uh, and he is now flying Eagle. And I think the one thing that a lot of people become fixated on in this scene and, and, you know, we're again, we're going to talk about music in a little while here. Um, but this is why the movie has, you know, a warning prior to the start of the film. And we can debate or we can discuss whether some of these films should have disclaimers, should have warnings. Um, the, the real thing that becomes cringy about this is that it's the way that the Indians are drawn. It's the way that they're painted, you know, where they are red skin. Right. And we obviously will talk about what makes the red man red in a little while um, to the point where I think it was Mark Davis later on. And, and I don't think very, very long after this film came out that he said, if, if we made this movie today, we would not have made these characters look this way. Um, I think that for them to admit that, you know, on their own, like, yeah, maybe not the most tasteful way of doing it. Um, you you can sit there and say it's a product of its time. And I think that there is, a f I think that it's a valid point that you can make in a lot of films. And I also think that you learn from history. If you don't learn from history, you're due to repeat history, which is, I think, something that a lot of people have kind of forgotten about in today's day and age. Um, it, it's a cringy part but I'm I'm not exactly sure that it requires a 12 second warning. I don't I don't know that children under the age of seven, you know, in the parental blocks that it's Disney Plus, there is a way to set that under the age of seven, you can't watch a film. This is one of those films that is actually under a parental block. So if that block is set up, like a six year old cannot find and seek out Peter Pan. Well, I think that's part of a bigger conversation because to me, the warning, if I saw that as a child, I'd be like, oh, what, what is this? Why, why is this bad? And that's where you need to parent your child and explain to them that, you know, don't dismiss it as it being a product of its time, but explain to them why this is not an accurate portrayal. Explain to them what is wrong with it and Make it a learning experience instead of just letting Disney warn you about it because now they're going to have probably more questions than they do answers. One thing that truly makes me cringe in this scene, and I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about the more obvious moments when we talk about the song, um, but Luke, you had mentioned it earlier about the women's role and how that gets portrayed in this movie. And that's something that always stood out to me was that, you know, all of the boys and the men are having fun. And then um, the chief wife's the chief's wife comes out and it's squag at firewood. And it's just like you woman get to work. And to me, that really doesn't hold. But for Wendy's character, again, she gets mad immediately because everybody else 
gets to have fun and she doesn't get to participate. And, um, you know, this is just another instance where she's being forced to grow up while everybody else gets to enjoy themselves. Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, this is where those two sort of really bad stereotypes and, and very, very terrible depictions of certain characters come together, which is a shame because it really is a beautifully drawn scene other than the, the color choices and things, but the, the way that the fire plays and the way that you, you know, see the, the dancing and, and, and things like that. I think it is really, really beautiful. But at the end of the day, I, I find it very difficult to watch this scene, not only because of the lyrics of, of the song, but the way that, that the Indians being drawn is almost subhuman is, is really difficult. Uh, and then I think the, the thing that, that stood out to me on this rewatch is that there, if you notice, all the Indians are that very dark red color. There are two Indians that are not, and they are lighter skinned, and they are the two that we are supposed to be seen as being beautiful. One is Tiger Lily, and the other one is that that the Indian who, you know, is with uh, the, the, the guy and they talk about the mother-in-law. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it, that it, again, kind of shows, shows us, Hey, these are the ones that you're supposed to be attracted to, not the other ones. Right. And so it, because of those things, it makes it very, very difficult for what is otherwise a very catchy song, unfortunately, and be a beautifully, beautifully drawn scene. And then this is also where we sort of see the, the growing up of, uh, of the characters, maybe not actually growing up as, terms of being an adult, but you see Michael taking a step forward in his confidence. You see John really kind of embodying that lost boy kind of mentality. Uh, and then you see Peter as his ultimate sort of, you know, he's now chief, uh, the, he, he's got the chief, the headdress, and he is, he is, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of what he's going to be throughout the entirety of the film. So uh, it's, it, it is, it is kind of a shame that, that everything is marked by this, these terrible depictions, because there's so much that is important to the story right. in this scene. Very well put. Yeah, I, we're, and it's it is like you said. It's it, the depictions are so outdated, and and they don't hold up by today's standards at all. But we're totally okay with the idea of a child cutting off a human's hand and spending the next hour and 20 minutes trying to feed him to a crocodile where he will meet a very, very painful, untimely death. Uh, that's okay. We're, we're going to gloss that whole thing over. I, I just, you know, and maybe it is because we, you know, we as adults, we recognize that there are depictions that are incorrect that are improper but i do find it to be a shame that a child there is the chance that a child may not just find peter pan on their own and to your point jackie that's where a parent needs to be a parent but we also live in this generation where parents just give the kids the ipad because parents don't want a parent anymore mm -hmm. and like there is a there is there is a balance that i think you need to strike I think I give Disney credit for acknowledging, hey, you know what? We're not going to... Because they could very easily go in and edit this. Oh. But they don't. So I, I think that there's there's something to be said about we're not going to touch this. It's a part of history. We can't take it back. We can learn from this. But on the other hand... I think that people have just become so triggered by warnings, especially with the way that this is worded. If you've ever really sat there and read the warnings, it sort of implies you're about to see something 
bad. Yes. And I think that that's where I wish that they would maybe, I think they're trying too hard to be apologists for their previous work. And I think that, inst- I wish that they would just say, hey, you know what? There are depictions in this film that may not be appropriate for younger audiences because they depict stereotypes and we've learned from them and, you know, whatever. There's just a way to say it. I think that you just are going to have children that are going to see movies like this, see movies like The Jungle Book, which to me, I think of this you can at least justify. Okay, obviously, what makes the red man red? You yeah you you definitely want I I can understand where you're gonna put a warning before that I think with the Jungle Book there are people that dive into that an awful lot and find reasons to to find that film offensive I just think that there are too many opportunities for a child to not learn from a film I think that there are too many opportunities for a child to not find a timeless film because here we are going to slap a warning before Peter Pan and yet there's a there's a two-hour wait on Peter Pan's flight every day at the Magic Kingdom so see we're not so we're not going to and and Tinkerbell's in all the fireworks shows so like we're we're not going to brush Peter Pan to the side but you're about to see something bad do you do you, this is kind of like my thing is it I don't know that it needs the warning, and if it does, I think you need to adjust the wording, the wording of the warning, because it's bad. But 144 bucks a day, and Lightning Lane, let's go. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's, I, I feel like there's a balance there that they're not necessarily striking. Oh, absolutely. I think it's also because of the way they did this one with a countdown that you cannot move past. I think it's smart that you can't just skip past it. And they did more than just the little um, graphic at the top that says uh, depictions are... Uh, depictions of smoking, depictions of violence. Yes. I'm, I'm glad that they didn't gloss over it in that way. But I think that by slapping the countdown on, knowing that this is important to read... And I'm just talking from a child's point of view. I think you're right. It makes it seem so much worse than it is instead of using this as a teachable moment. I think rather than say, hey, this is bad, what they should do is have, I don't mind that the warning is there. I would rather it come from a place, to, to Jackie's point earlier, of education, of here, here is what we now know. And here is, here is, you know, here. Here is why these depictions are harmful to people who are still living today, right? And who are who are around us, who are our everyday people. This is why it's harmful. I would rather than do something like that, rather than say, hey, somewhere in this, you know, hour and 20 movie you're about to watch, there's something that we did that we think is bad. And I, I, I moving from, from acknowledgement to education, I think is the the path for those warnings. Now, what's hard for that is then it's like, you know, you're you're admitting exactly what you did wrong. Rather than saying, "Hey, you know, there's something that could be wrong in here. If you're offended, we're sorry." Right. So it's this blanket statement versus a a pointed, directed, "Here's what's going on, and here's why this warning exists." Type of thing. Um, but to you know, to 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 both of your points, though, the the success of the film and the success of the franchise of Peter Pan does not hinge on these depictions, and and that to me is really really good. Right. Um, is that th- th- this is not the reason why this is successful. Um, and so with that, um, you know, I think that, that, that figuring out the way to educate the youth who don't understand why the depictions are wrong is the way to go rather than just scrubbing it or editing it or, you know, whatnot. 
to piggyback off of that and to your point about there being a disconnect that they have no problem representing this film when it's going to upsell, you know, Genie Plus, Lightning Lane, whatever. I think that what they should be doing is, you know, perhaps a little bit more on the back end where maybe they put a link um, on the screen for, for more information, visit, you know, d23.com slash Peter Pan and have the information there of, you know, why this was done at the time, why it's wrong and, and what we can do now to change and have that further reading included and more information there. That way, if parents aren't going to parent, which we can't trust that they will, maybe there is a kid or two whose lives you touch and whose lives you change that can go look into more of that information. And, you know, what better way to put the Disney archives and Disney historians to work than to, instead of, of you know, apologizing for it, now use it to teach and, and correct it and use it for change and for a bigger purpose. Well, we've talked about how Disney reacts, right? And their zero to 60 reactions. This was just a quick, easy, cheap, let's not forget cheap, way to react, shoot it down, and sit there and say, we don't stand behind it, folks, and then upsell all of these other things at Disney parks, right? What I wish that they would do, did you, um, did either of you have uh, all, do- uh, all Dogs Go to Heaven on VHS when you were kids? No, I that sure movie's did. traumatizing. Okay. I've seen it, but it's traumatizing. Okay, so Luke, you remember on that VHS tape, prior to the film starting, and this kind of plays with what you're talking about, mm. Dom DeLuise, you remember this, Luke? I, yeah, absolutely. D- Dom DeLuise comes on and says, this is what you're about to see. After the movie's over, we're going to have a conversation. There you go. So how, you know, you could have, it could be Josh Gad, you know, somebody that's just thinking it could be, it could be Stamos. It could be Iger. It could be, it's just somebody that is a figurehead of Disney that could come on like Michael Eisner used to do, like Jeffrey Katzenberg used to do. Right. And come on and say, you know, hi, I'm Josh Gad, Disney legend, Josh Gad, or hi, I'm my, I'm, you know, I almost said Michael Eisner. Hi, I'm, (laughs) I'm Bob Iger, CEO of the Walt Disney company. And just say. And just kind of like quickly say and do it in like a very friendly and approachable way. Michael Eisner was very good at doing that. Yes. Where it, he was he was Uncle Mike, right? Hey, you're about to see this. With and, his baseball cap. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I'm fun and relatable. You're about to see this and, and this is this is how things used to be done. And we've learned and we've grown. And, you know, after the film, we, we, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more and how we've changed as a company. But please enjoy... Walt Disney's classic Peter Pan. You know what I'm saying? Like, there are ways to do this where I just think you just make it more approachable for kids instead of just, like I said, making them feel like they're about to see something that's bad. Because I, I would just hate that that a child would, asso- instead of learning from history, would just associate this film with being bad. Because ultimately, while the depictions are bad, the, there, there's nothing bad about the film. And, and, you know, as far as its history and its importance to the company, you're absolutely right. You would hate for a child to think that's bad. But um, that's a brilliant solution, Sean. Like, really, I, I, don't, I don't know if we write in or, you know, just try and use this platform to, 
to really pursue this because to me that is such a more effective solution than having words on the screen that are hardly going to grab a child's attention but you put josh scat up there or neil patrick harris like okay that's a captive audience like what are you telling me this is important because josh gad is saying that. like use and and to these disney legends who are getting paid millions upon millions of dollars by the company use your platform for something good with all of this being said though i do appreciate that they did not cut any of this out because to luke's point you are killing important story beats if you do that wendy is not only annoyed and storming off in a huff again but this was her trigger for we're going home now this is over game over i'm done and it's hugely important for tinkerbell because she has been banished she is outside looking in and this is what enables smee who up to this point has barely been able to carry out a single one of hook's orders and you know, yes, he is the butt of the joke. Yes, he is inept. This is the first time that he's successful in capturing Tinkerbell. Um, and it leads into one of my favorite scenes of animation, my favorite Tinkerbell scenes. I love how Hook is wooing Tinkerbell. We see him at the piano, which is just so brilliantly animated that he can only play with one hook. And they figured out to how to incorporate that into the music itself. Um, and then to see Tink's big moment where she's got to communicate without words. And I love how she walks across the map. This whole sequence is just phenomenal. One of my favorites in this film. There is a painting that I saw when I was a cast member at Disney World that to this day, I am so disappointed I did not purchase. And the painting was a view of Hook's desk right after Tinkerbell had left the map. Oh. And so it was, the, so the cool thing was you saw the fairy footprints and you saw the dagger, you know, holding the map down and you saw a little, uh, it was basically like a small skull rock on the side. And then the, the coolest part of, of the entire painting is very, very faintly in the back, you saw two crocodile eyes looking up over the desk. It was, it was a beautiful painting and I'm, to this day, I'm sad that I never purchased it and I haven't been able to find it again. So if anybody out there has a copy of or knows where I can purchase that painting, I would love to know. But this scene is a very uh, extremely pivotal scene in uh, in this film. Um, not only do we kind of see, you know, Hook at his, what I think his best and his most verbose and his most kind of, you know, uh, um, uh, flamboyant self, but you see Smee trying to keep up, but also drinking a lot, which I found really interesting in this scene. Um, and then this is where I thought that we would get our Back to the Future reference, uh, because <laughs> you do have Captain Hook exclaim, great Scott, at one point. And um, so I, I, I thought that it would come at this point in the podcast, not, you know, earlier on. But uh, but that's where you get that. Yeah, I, I agree with you, though, Jackie, the, the, uh, the, the playing between Hook, Tinkerbell, and Smee in this scene is just, it's marvelous. And um, I absolutely love the way that it's animated. I love the dialogue. Uh, and, and I think it is a, it, it, the scene works in every single way. And I think that this is where nowadays, as we look back on it, and, and I think this is where it's going to be very different depending on your age, right? We obviously grew up in a time where we only had Peter Pan. Now you've got a younger audience that is born into a world where you have Peter Pan. 
but you've got all of these Peter Pan sequels, and now you have all of these Tinkerbell spinoffs. And Tinkerbell now is like the fun pixie. She's a fun fairy, right? And she's got all her little pixie friends. Because money. Because marketing. Because toys. It is incredible to me, and not necessarily in a good way, how much they have changed this character over the years. And frankly, it, it goes back to what I said before, and it's sort of my argument, maybe even more so here than, you know, than, than in regards to the conversation that we just had. For all of these years, you had no problem with Tinkerbell setting up Wendy to be killed, setting up Wendy to be kidnapped. Like twice. But it's what made Tinkerbell such a great character. Now you've kind of got this half-baked Tinkerbell character so that we can sell more Halloween costumes, so that we can sell more dolls, so that we can make friends that we can turn into dolls and we can sell. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's kind of a shame to me that we've gotten away from this character. I wish that we could have maybe gotten more backstory about Tinkerbell. If you're going to do spinoffs, give us more. Give us what they've done with films like Maleficent, Cruella, the only kind of live-action Disney films that we truthfully need. I'd rather have had a Captain Hook film than Peter Pan and Wendy. You know, give us what we just saw in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, where you really start to look at what Rocket's backstory is. I wish that you would have done more of that with Tinkerbell instead of just making her a softer version. Who speaks now, by the way? I think that this character was so much stronger when, to take your phrase that you used earlier, when she was the HBIC, when she was able to do so much simply by emoting, not even speaking, but but due to incredible artwork and great animation, you have this really well-fleshed-out character that has so much depth and so much potential. I it It's just so incredible to me how much they've changed this character. I got nothing. I think I, I think you're absolutely right. I I don't I don't know the the I don't know how much of a backstory you could get from Tinkerbell though. If I had to argue that point of it, because you know in the so in the in the lore of of the book, right? Fairies were created when the first child laughed for the first time. The laugh broke into a million pieces, and they all went skipping about. And that was the beginning of fairies. And so if you if you take it that way, well, okay, that would be her backstory. I think maybe how she met up and, and, uh, and partnered with Peter Pan may be a really compelling backstory that you could tell. Um, I'll, I'll get into a theory of, of mine later on uh, about that partnership, but uh, I think I, I think that that Tinkerbell is you know is kind of the sub villain of this movie, but then also the savior at the end. So it's a weird it's it's a weird character that you kind of you balance uh, and and try to figure it out. But I think that this scene in particular. Um, it, it shows her moment of weakness where she's like, you know what? The only thing I want is just me and Peter and that's it. And no Wendy in the picture. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. But she's also going to make sure that Peter doesn't get hurt in the process. Correct. And that's where, yeah, to, to your point, that backstory would have been interesting to see is to, you know, why she's separated from her friends and family, the fairies and why she gravitates towards Peter and why, you know, why she's his right hand. And I love that Hook targets her. I love that he plays with her emotion. And I love that ultimately he is so smarmy, right? Hook keeps his promise. 
I yes. am not going to lay a hand on Peter. But he's still going to attempt to get his way because he's right. He doesn't le- he doesn't put a hand on Peter. Instead, he leaves a bomb. So much better. But but doesn't it do so much to continue to develop that this character as funny as he is because he and Smee, they're the villains but also the comic relief. Ultimately, you need to just buy him as a villain. He can't just be... Ultimately, he's a villain that gets outwitted by a child. And a very childish child at the end of the day, right? You still need to make him believable. You still need to make him diabolical enough. And I think that you you need to give him a level of intelligence that other than... All right, we're going to kidnap Tiger Lily. Okay, well, that that's great. But when that doesn't work, it's we, we need to step up. And I think playing with someone's emotion, playing the playing a, a mental game with somebody, and then just the just the idea that you're going to gift wrap a bomb for a child. We can't look past all of this. And it really does, I think it makes for a great villain. No, this is again where he is just so perfectly balanced. Because, you know, you forget some of the more evil things that he does because the memorable part of it is the comic relief. But they've balanced out the evil and the comedy. They've taken him down so far. They're almost playing him like he's a dumb character. But this is where they elevate it because he's able to woo Tinkerbell because he does understand how things work. And now he is able to because that's the whole thing you're gonna lose your evilness um if he is able to be outsmarted by a child um so so it's just so smart how they bring it all back around but they they balance the the comedy and the intelligence they've struck that chord already but here they figure out a way to still make him likable for the audience, even though he's doing this absolutely horrible thing. And they still give us reasons to almost root for him because he will give a child a bomb, but he won't make a promise. And that still gives the kids in the audience something to latch onto of, well, maybe he's not all bad. Yeah. And it's almost a twofold thing, right? So he, he, he will always keep his word. And that I will say is, is a bigger theme in the book. Uh, the other bigger theme in the book is that, Captain Hook and the pirates have a very strict set of rules uh, that we actually see again in Peter Pan and Wendy, the live action, which I I really enjoy um, that they brought that aspect in. Uh, I think it's really interesting here that if you, if you think about Captain Hook as the embodiment of adulthood, right? A child would see, oh, an adult would make a promise, but then find a way to sneak around it, right? An adult would be manipulative with my feelings and my emotions and and tell me one thing when really they mean another thing, right? So as an adult, uh, I, I think, or as a child, I would think, yep, these are actions that an adult would make, right? And I think that that is the interesting part if you, if you kind of lay out those themes of who is what and, and what they represent. If Captain Hook represents adulthood, that is what a child would think that they would do. And you also kind of relate to Captain Hook because not only is he trying to to take down his nemesis and his foe, he also has this existential crisis of a crocodile that is 
following him around, trying to kill him, right? So you you have a lot of different ways that you can relate to that character. And I think this this scene and then the next one at Hangman's Tree really shows, you know, that, you know, th there are these different layers to Captain Hook than when you initially meet him uh, at, a, at the Jolly Roger. So the scene at Hangman's Tree, I do have a question for you, Luke. Um, obviously it plays more to a live audience. If you believe in fairies, clap your hands. Um, yay or nay on leaving that out here? So it's really interesting. I think, I think the fact that these characters are animated, it was okay. I don't know how it would play for Peter or for Tink to look to camera and say, I need you, you know, I need you clap your hands. Right. I will say one of it was an awful production and not a, not the best thing ever, but the live action that I think Fox did of Peter Pan with Christopher Walken as hook and Allison Williams as Peter Pan. Yes. It was not successful. It was, I, I did not enjoy it. However, I still get chills thinking about close shot on Allison Williams and her looking at camera and saying, I need you to believe in fairies with me, clap your hands. Right. So that I think plays because we have that human emotion. We can connect one human to another. I think it plays a little bit less animated one to another. Although I would be interested to see it. Right. I would really be interested to see that scene animated in and see how it plays. Right. Because when TikTok does it and he breaks the fourth wall, it's hilarious right. and it works Hold and it. it's perfect for that moment here. I think it might have felt a little clunky and the only other way that you could really go about it is similar to how they do it in Finding Neverland, where the family is watching the play. And but again, it's the play. So you do you just have that that easy out of you can bring your audience in. I think the only way to do it here is perhaps if Wendy, Michael and John were still in the treehouse and Peter needed to explain to them Tink is dying you need to clap your hands to save her. But I feel like that would have been going a bit too far and crossing too much of a line to put the kids in that much peril. And, you know, we just talked about it. They're not going to drown Wendy. They're certainly not going to put the kids anywhere near this bomb. I, th I It's horrible to see with Peter, but I think that it almost gets more justified because he's never going to grow up. You you kind of do associate him. That's a question actually that they really don't explore enough is yes, he's never going to grow up, but is he in fact immortal? Can he die? Um, I think they give you an answer here because the bomb doesn't kill him, but obviously they were not going to kill off their title character. But I, I think that that might've been the only way to go about it is to involve the kids. And clearly you're not going to do that. And it's easier to fluff it off when it's the two two Neverland characters who we still haven't established whether this is real or not. It's just more easy to compartmentalize it that way. I think the only way that you could have done this is if you incorporated the Lost Boys as opposed to doing some sort of audience participation. And I mean, listen, it's well documented. Disney was not afraid to recycle animation. Uh, you could have easily recycled some of the animation from uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And you could have put the Lost Boys around Tinkerbell and you would have just had to reanimate them as clapping. Oh, I think that they do, actually. There were certain scenes that I had never noticed before, 
But until we started doing monoreal radio and like really just fine tooth combing everything, I never realized that there is recycled animation in this film. I believe it happens when John opens his umbrella. I think that's Jiminy Cricket. Um, I always thought as a kid, like it was reminiscent because you've got the top hat and the umbrella, but I think that is straight up recycled. And there were moments of the Lost Boys where I was like, how many of you are there? Wait a second. And I counted them and I was like, "Mm, this looks very familiar. And you can't tell me that Wendy, like, yes, it was the same animator, So there's going to be similarities to Alice anyway, but there are very specific Alice gestures that are certainly recycled. Absolutely. Uh, And that's where, you know, having IMDb in these day and age where you can go back and say, oh, she sounds a lot like Alice. Oh, it is Alice, right? But back then you you wouldn't know necessarily unless you really, really knew those, those characters. In the scene with the bomb, it's really interesting that they chose a bomb. And I think they chose a bomb for this moment. So in the book, it's actually poison and right. Tink drinks a poison, right? And so uh, it, it's only later that that Hook comes back and basically bombs Hangman's tree, um, which leads us into when we when we pick up at Hook, when you know the, the tree is bombed out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is all charred and everything, which, which great detail there. I think it's really interesting that they kind of move that up in the story and it works a lot better for animation. I don't think it plays as well if you have a bottle of, of poison uh, which is, you know, in the in the book, it's it's a bottle of poison. In the stage show, it's a it's a green cake that is a poisoned cake. Right. And this one now, it's like a gift that's a bomb, right? I think it plays much better in the animation, has a much better visual. Um, but I think is is, in my opinion, a bomb is more final, like a, a more final death than a you know poison that that could kind of work its way out of the system or whatnot so really interesting that that they go with that and then that you get peter and tink both surviving um which to your point we don't really know if they're immortal or not but i think if we need a clue we can point to this to say yes it's so funny this just goes to show how long it's been since i've watched this because as i'm watching this scene i'm the whole time i'm going I thought it was a cake. I would swear this was a cake. And I have them all conflated in my mind. I mean, the fact that Tinkerbell gets that bomb less than three feet away from Peter by the time it goes off and both of them miraculously recover just in time. It's seemingly minutes later to rescue Wendy from the plank, I think kind of... uh, answers the question as to whether or not they are immortal. I think it also, it it becomes a very interesting question that you have to ask yourself as well, because what we glossed over at this point was Wendy has already told Peter that we are not staying. We're going back to London tomorrow. And he basically casts her off and sits there and goes, ah, now they'll come back, simply because what he says to her is, when you grow up, you may never come back. Mm-hmm. Except you have an entire ship filled with adults that are here. Now, they sort of cover that up cleverly in this whole scene where they're about to walk the plank, where they offer them the opportunity to join Hook's crew. But if they join Hook's crew, this kind of a wormhole, right? If they join Hook's crew, do they grow up? but get to stay in Neverland because they're pirates or do they stay children that will also be a part of Hook's crew? It does kind of uh, open Pandora's box of 
But if but if Hook is here as an adult and his crew is here as adults, why can't Wendy leave and come back? I mean, I understand they're trying to play off this idea that you won't believe, which they really do a great job of picking up on in Hook. Hook does a lot of really great yeah. things to continue the story seamlessly. Um, but but there is there there is sort of an unanswered question here. And again, it it leads you to wonder, is this real or is it all fake? Because it seems like we're kind of making up the rules as we go along. I have a couple of different schools of thought here. And maybe I've given it too much thought. Maybe I've not given it enough. Um, I always kind of got the impression that Hook was able to sort of dip in and out. And that the pirates could dip in and out. Because I thought he... Um, I thought his whole goal was to eliminate Peter and then leave Neverland. I thought they were only docked there because he's got unfinished business with Peter. So that always sort of gave me the impression that he was able to go and come back. And that's why they're sort of aging when they're not in Neverland. And that's why they've made it to adulthood. And then they kind of freeze time when they return. Um, But as far as Peter telling Wendy um, you can never come back which does sort of contradict itself and I didn't realize he contradicts himself I didn't realize that until you said it he says you can never come back and then he's like eh, they'll be back um, I almost get the impression that he sort of means like you're dead to me like if you do grow up you can physically come back here but you're going to be no better than the pirates like I'm going to lump you in with them if you're not one of my lost boys then you mean nothing to me anymore. Um, so I guess that's kind of how I always justified that in my mind. But Luke, I'm curious to your thoughts on that. I mean, multiple theories, right? So if we if we go with the theory that the Lost Boys got there because they were boys who were dumb enough to fall out of their prams or out of their strollers, and Peter saved them to take them to Neverland, right? And And then he basically raised them. There is an element of... Peter being able to stop and start time for people. And mm-hmm. I, I almost believe that, that if you think of him as this omnipotent kind of uh, time turner type person, the pirates he brought to Neverland as Lost Boys made them into pirates, made them grow up so that he would have a foil, so that he would have an adversary, right? You, you also could say that, uh, you know, if, you, if you're outside of Neverland, you're not growing up. So the only way that the pirates got there were as adults. How did they get there? That goes into multiple different theories. Is, is Neverland heaven? Uh, is, uh, you know, are, are we just uh, kids telling stories and all of it's made up and none of, you know, it's the, the points are made up and they don't matter, right? It's a, it's a whose line is it anyway scenario. Um, or is it is it that uh, you know that you get to select what you are when you're in Neverland? And the Lost Boys selected to stay young. Peter selected to be, you know, the embodiment of youth, and that's who they are today. The pirates selected to be pirates to grow up. Um, you know, the Indians selected to be Indians, so on and so forth. So, a lot of different ways that you can look at it. I don't think there's one proper way, right? Um, the, the book never really explains it either, uh, like how the pirates got there. And I think that's okay. I think that, you know, you, this is where I think the story can be so powerful is it can mean many different things to many different people. And I think that Disney probably really played up on the idea of the metaphor, right? Yes. Where 
Hook as an adult, and because he is the only adult, and TikTok is chasing him, right? So his clock is ticking. Eventually, time is going to catch up with him. TikTok is a metaphor for death. Hook is a metaphor for wanting to kill childhood innocence and being the embodiment of what it means to grow up, right? Like, he is, he's basically, he's the darling's father, but in Neverland. Very similar to how Alan Parrish's father is also the hunter in Jumanji, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's there's a, I think that's probably what they're doing here, and maybe they did that as a way of, you know, for a lack of a better term, fine-tuning the storytelling, because that's obviously what Disney is known for. That's the only thing I can think in regards to where they feel like they could tie it up without it being, as I kind of said before, Pandora's box of questions. No, and I think of all the things that we're asked to suspend our disbelief for in this film, that's minutia. But if that's, yeah, but if that's what they were looking to pull off, I think they did it incredibly well. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, so, all right, now you've got Wendy, she's practical. The boys, and, and the boys are ready to join Captain Hook's crew. Like, without question. All of the Lost Boys, and even, you know, John and Michael, they're, oh, this sounds fun, he sounds convincing, this sounds like it's going to be a good time. Like, without giving it a second thought, they're ready to join the crew. And Wendy is the one that talks sense into them, and she's ready to walk the plank. And it's a very powerful scene where they say goodbye to their sister. And, you know, I think John says something to the effect of, I'll try to be noble or whatever it was that he says to her. She says, be brave. And he says, I I shall strive to, Wendy. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very powerful scene. This is where Wendy really wins me back over because you know we've mentioned I've said several times she storms off in a huff and I I haven't really addressed it that Wendy is not really one of my favorite characters for that reason is because I think that they made her a little bit pouty and as somebody who grew up on the you know we've referred to them the Disney Renaissance princesses as these strong female princesses I never really lumped Wendy in with that same group not just because she's not a princess but like I never identified her as a strong character because it's always "Hmm, Peter's not giving me attention Hmm." and I I really do kind of think that she's pouty here is where my opinion totally changes because she is the only one brave enough to walk the plank she's being a good big sister she is making a very adult decision uh and it really does remind you that she really has been a strong character throughout because she's the one who's been holding it down and keeping everybody grounded and bringing everyone back to reality this is the moment for for me in the film where wendy accepts her fate that she's going to grow up and that she is telling everybody, it's okay. It's okay that I'm growing up. It's okay that I'm going away and I'm not going to be able to play these games with you anymore. And so to me, her walking the plank and saying, you know, basically electing to go first and electing to show them the way is her saying that that this is fine. This is a part of life. This is a part of adulthood. What I what I love, or, you know, this, this is a part of growing up. What I love is that then thinking that it wouldn't come Peter is there to save the day. 
and the the embodiment of youth will always be with you and will always you know have a part in your life right i i love i, I kind of love that arc for wendy is that she's kind of been resisting 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 and then when it's kind of like all right you know this is going to come whether i like it or not let's uh let's accept it and then you still have peter there at the end of the day to save you and to hold you up that is one of the beautiful things about growing up is that yes you have to do it but it's figuring out how to hold on to your right. childhood and she's finally doing it on her terms right yes it, it, it may be on captain hook's terms and it may, or it may be captain hook forcing her her dad forcing her it may be you know the rest of the pirates kind of pushing the way but at the end of the day she's going to go with her head held high and she does which i think is, is actually really beautiful and beautifully animated how she actually steps off and kind of kind of falls right so or, or what we see of her her falling so and i love that she says she sheds one single tear she's able to mourn her childhood but she's still gonna do it she doesn't break down and cry she she doesn't you know like topple off of the plank she's she just allows it to to be what it is and exactly as you said she accepts it so this final scene, this final battle, um, it's fun. It's very quick. Um, it's not very drawn out at all. You have Wendy walks the plank. We don't hear the splash. We see that Peter and Tinkerbell have saved her. The Lost Boys fight and overtake Hook's crew while Peter fights Hook. Um, it probably didn't need to be drawn out much longer than it was, especially because... You know, the movie, like I said, it's 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 a runtime of an hour and 22 minutes, which for an animated film in 1953, that, that's average. You know, that's they didn't have these long runtimes that they they sort of have now. Um, I don't think they needed to do too much more with it. it, it like live action, you want to draw it out. Yes, that makes sense. Um, but I think for what they did here and especially the way that, that hook goes out, cause he, he doesn't really go out. Right. Mm. Um, we just see him get chased away with Smee and the remaining crew as TikTok chases after him. Um, quick and to the point, but I don't think that it hurts the film at all. I agree. I think it would have felt like it was dragging on because we've already seen a sword fight at Skull Rock, even though there's a lot more comedy peppered throughout that scene, I don't think we needed a complete rehash. Where it's very effective, though, is that Hook points out that Peter's always going to get away because he can just fly. So now we've seen Hook keep a promise. We see Peter keep a promise where he says, we're going to do this fair and square, and he still bests Hook. And, you know removing all of the fantasy elements of it, he's still going to outsmart the bad guy. Even though he is an adolescent, even though he is trapped in this childlike state, I, I like that it pushes him towards making an adult decision and, and figuring out, you know, in his own way, he is almost growing up a little bit. And I think that's very important to the last scene which we'll get into yeah it, this is this is an evolution of peter right he's not going to rely on his powers he is going to keep his word uh i love the metaphor of him actually using the pirate flag uh to you know bundle up hook it's like hey this is the thing that you're living and dying by and it's going to be the thing that you, that you actually end up dying by right um it, it also you know 
gives credence to the phrase hoisted by your own petard because he literally is in this in this scenario. What I uh, what I would bump on uh, in this uh, this scene uh, is there are three lines from the book and from sort of Peter Pan lore that is missing that I just I, I that that are kind of said earlier on at Skull Rock but that normally happen here, which is dark and sinister man have at the uh, you know embodiment uh, and uh, or uh, insolescent embodiment of youth prepared to die, and then Peter's line, which is my absolute favorite line in all of Peter Pan lore, which is to die, to die would be an awfully oh, big, a adventure. big adventure. Yeah. I very much wish that that we would have gotten that here. Um, however, I think to say to die would be an awfully big adventure in a children's movie, maybe pushing it a little bit too far. So I can understand them eliminating it. Um, I just very much wish that we had some semblance of that here. Um, other than that, no notes on the scene. Really, really done. Really well done. Really well animated too. Yeah, because in Hook, they get all those in there. Dark and Sinister Man, To Die would be an awfully big adventure. They get they sure all do. of that in. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't love the idea of reworking words of classic literature, but at the same time, more of a wink and a nod would have been nice rather than just say you're a codfish, you know? That that's kind of weak sauce in comparison. Well, yeah, we definitely went from you know from uh, from like Charles Dickens with the literacy to like, hey, Barney's Playtime. Say you're a part a podfish, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, which I get again. The 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 time when this came out, I think you needed that levity for a children's movie, uh, and it doesn't take anything away from it. I don't think, but knowing that like the power behind those words in the scene, in the book, and in the uh, and in the play, uh, and then in that we see in later iterations of Peter Pan. You know, it it leaves me wanting that, I guess, is a better way to put it. Even just dark and sinister man say you're a codfish. But um, I don't know that I would call this version of Hook dark and sinister. I mean, well, yes, you did just bomb Peter. So, yeah, I, I think you could have at least gotten that one in there. I think he's way too flamboyant. I think that the way that they play him, and especially for comic relief at times with him and Smee, I don't think that it would have necessarily worked. And I, I also think now in retrospect, as we've talked through and, and we'll continue to talk through a little bit here in a few moments about some of the elements of the film that haven't aged well, right? We had a whole conversation about it, not what, 15, 20 minutes ago. It might you... have been longer. This this episode is stacked. Well, Lawson's here. Are you? My fault. My fault. Um, the fact of the matter is, in retrospect, had they leaned into some of the darker elements, and now you've got a lot of elements of the film that by today's standards don't hold up, I'm not sure that this movie would hold up as well as it has if you went with some of those darker themes. Mm. You know, I don't, I, I think it's the, oh, I got Batman in here. I think it's the reverse of Batman Returns. <laughs> Batman Returns, when it came out, in 92 was panned for being way too dark. But now that you've had the dark Knight come out now, people are starting to reinvest in that film. This is why Burton got booted right. because of Batman returns of the four Batman films. It's now regarded as the best one. But it was the but it got him fired. That's why Schumacher came in for Batman Forever, and they went really cartoony with Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey. 
I don't think that you would have had the reverse here. I don't think this movie would be revered in in later years. I think that they would have said it aged very poorly. So it's 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 amazing how something that was deemed too dark in the 90s is now being put up on a pedestal. It's it's sort of the brass ring that DC and Batman reaches for. But it's the film that got Tim Burton fired. I don't think you I think it would have had the reverse impact on Peter Pan for all of the same reasons. I think that it would have I don't think this film would be nearly as revered and I think that that lightheartedness and the and the comedy and the brightness and the flamboyance I think that's what keeps this film timeless. I would agree. You know he's going to go for the trifecta now, Luke, right? I was about to say uh, let's just say Ghostbusters and get the bingo out of the way. <laughs> hey, it's the drinking game. It's the Monorail Radio drinking game that you developed. Uh, that you you I have love to it. Well, you have to add bumping on now. Uh, I have to have to. I'll, 100%. I'll own that one. You may as well just call it the free space at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best. You, you guys are the best. So yeah, and I, I think I think you're right. Leaning on the darker elements of the of the story would probably not make it as beloved as it is today. Um, I think what 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 does and, and some of the best animation of the entire film is the pirate ship turning to gold. And so when we get that final sort of, A, I, I didn't know that Tinkerbell was that powerful, right? So you, you get to see kind of what she's capable of in this moment, even though she was just bombed about five minutes ago. Uh, she's able to basically control and cover the entirety of the pirate ship. That sort of melting from color into gold is, a, you know, one of those iconic scenes and shots that I think is so beautifully well done. Uh, and then seeing it soar through the sky, again, is just a fantastic way to kind of leave a fantastic place, right? And so it, it, I think, embodies, like, who as a kid would not have wanted to pilot a pirate ship through the sky? Golden pirate ship at that, right? It's just, it's beautiful. It's a great way to kind of leave this place that we've grown to love. And I think transitioned us, transitions us back to London really well. I couldn't agree more. I think this is also maybe why watching it as a kid, you forget about the Big Ben shot and all the beautiful flying sequences over London because this is more what stands out in my memory. It's absolutely stunning. Um, and I really love what this does for Peter. It gives him a full character arc because even though he is going to stay in Neverland, even though he is not actually going to grow up, I think that this was a very grown-up decision to bring them back and to let them go. And to me, that is his awfully big adventure. I love that the parents get to see the pirate ship at the end of the film because the darling mother, she encourages these stories. She never stands in the way of the creativity of the children. But what we, where we're picking up is they've had their night out. The drugs are wearing off, right? <laughs> and Mr. Darling has said, you know, I never mean these things when I say them. Wendy can stay in the nursery. And he gets to see the ship. And what what they accomplish here is that not only and it's it's incredible animation. His reaction is so beautifully animated with the wide eye, right? Mhm. Not only does he see that this is not just poppycock, right? But it triggers his core memory 
of I think I, I, I remember seeing this when I was a young child. So Peter Pan, and they sort of touch on this in the live-action remake, Peter Pan comes back to this house for a reason. Yes. Okay? It, sort of in a Mary Poppins sort of way, where Mary, you know, she she picks the bank's children specifically. We now know that there is a lineage here where Peter has come back, maybe not to this house, but at least to this family, right? Um... And I think that it also plays up on the idea that perhaps this is just, Peter. Peter is this to every child, and eventually every child grows up. But at the end of the day, you'll always, even though you'll grow up and you won't go back to Neverland, and you do become that kind of calloused adult, that somewhere in your mind you'll always remember your Peter Pan. And I think that it's just such an incredible way to wrap up the story. I think it's a beautiful way to wrap up the story. And I think it's a beautiful way to kind of wrap up this metaphor that we have spent the last hour and 22 minutes exploring. I completely agree. I This is what I was talking about in the beginning where I think it does set us up to give a definitive answer of did it happen? Was it a dream? Is Peter Pan real? I think that we are meant to believe he's real just from Mr. Darling's one line. Um, you know, I, I think that's what really brings it full circle because I, I think, well, I think one of the strengths of this adaptation is that they use the same voice actor for Mr. Darling and Captain Hook. And obviously it is supposed to be that metaphor for losing your childhood and, you know, your mortality, um, was that an artistic choice? Was it done on purpose? Was it budgetary? I don't know. But I wish that that was something every single adaptation did. I, I believe the stage does it more often than not where it's the same actor. Um, but I wish more of the films did it. Because um, I, I just think that it's so brilliant and it really does give us that that well i mean it it could still leave it ambiguous if you don't believe any of it's real you could believe that it's it's a dream and simply that's what wendy was projecting her father to be in this story but i think that disney did have intent with this and they they want us to believe that peter's real so you're right on the the stage play actually the the 1898 copyright stage play that was supervised by jm barry that then spawned the the book of peter pan it has Captain Hook slash Mr. Darling. So the same actor is directed to be the, the same, right? Um, the interesting part about that is, yes, Mr. Darling does say, I think I saw this ship before. And then we pan back to the ship that then disperses into the clouds as multiple separate clouds that kind of came together to see the ship. So it goes back to, is it real? Was it just clouds that looked like a ship? Uh, you know, where, where does it go? So again, it goes to the, again, the success of the story is that it could mean many, many different things to many different people. And so I love, love, love that that's sort of what the, the note that is, is ended on. All right. We've got to do something we have never done on Monorail Radio. This is a first and it's difficult for us. We actually have to cut the conversation off. Uh, we have been going for quite some time. However, we do have part two of our conversation and our review of Peter Pan. We talk about the cast. We talk about the music. We give our final review, and we do talk about a great contest. That is out. You can listen to it now. 
On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of.